Hola, hola, Charlito. Charlito. Hola, Charlie. samples of how he curses at the guy so he just says fuck 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 over and over again <laughs> but he has some so you give him the detail right something that's like a inside thing right 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 and then on the on the greeting he'll unload on roberto that's interesting on on everything you and your bullshit the blasio yeah, yeah, yeah. for the blasio he sucks you know shit like that. <laughs> that's so it's not that expensive i think we should like we, like if six of us got in it'd be like an off the hook present yeah 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 you know my sister did that um with amanda seals you know amanda seals i've heard of her she, she's on insecure um my sister i guess you know hired her to like do the uh, I'm coming out, you know, with, you know, I want the world to know that I'm having a second child. Uh-huh. And Amanda Seals was like, is that a baby? <laughs> oh, no. And then she says, Lily, Lily is the, is the name of the, of the yeah. first girl. Oh, oh Lily, <laughs> what a surprise. And she's like all into it. And I'm like, wow, like that's a really easy way to make money. <laughs> Yo, they're making a killing. They're ma- you got to see how much they're making. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Look at this guy. The Yo, cigar. Because the top is canoeing on you. The cigar aficionado. My God, look at that. So, Appreciate it. They got, yeah, Dennis Rodman. They have everybody you could have. Jose Feliciano's doing Please not be that. Yo, you know, like, like, let me tell you something. If I get a birthday shout out from Michael, Michael Jordan, Jordan. Ah, he's not out <laughs> He's not out I will cry myself to sleep that day. I think um, Floyd Mayweather was going for like 5000 or something. Five For a birthday for like a five, not even, like a 30-second birthday yeah, shout out. Yeah, but you have like high-end. Yeah. Who's Romeo's cousin? What's his name? From Aventura? I forget his name. Yeah, uh, Romeo's yeah. cousin. Yeah. <laughs> he paid $20. Oh my, $20? Damn. I mean, I could do something for $20. Like, I can, I can spit a rhyme for $20, man. I can write your birthday shout out, you know. That's funny. You know what? You know, how about now with the OnlyFans? Yo. Yeah, like what's going on I with that? I'm gonna show you this. Look at this thing. I'm not gonna look it crazy. I'm gonna show you something that I thought was funny when I saw it. Look at this. What? You see this? I thought we made the point. Oh my god. <laughs> look at this. Bro. Oh my god. I made the softest pen in the world. I thought we needed to write only fans. <laughs> That's hilarious. My brother, so let's uh let's start, man. Let's go. You know? What's up, Mr. Attorney at Law, Professor? Univision correspondent, right? Loving father, cigar aficionado. Former shortstop for the Yankees? <laughs> no, bat boy. <laughs> bat yeah, boy for the Yankees. <laughs> Former court adversary. Well, actually, we didn't get to court. But um, Juan Carlos Polanco, right? Yeah. But affectionately known as JC. That's right. Thank I'm you sorry. for being here, brother. I'm so happy to be here with you, man. Yeah. So, big fan of the podcast. Thank you. Thank and you. You're doing great work. Um, I'm happy to be here. I so appreciate you, that. You called me. I couldn't wait to come down. Thank you, man. You threw on your favorite orange shirt. Yeah, I'm a Chacabana guy. <laughs> I have. Um, what's funny is I have 22 tailor-made. No, I'm not. I'm not. You know, I don't, I don't like to show off. I don't show off ever. But I found this tailor who makes Chacabanas in Washington Heights. Really. And they have been doing the best work. I wear these on when I go on TV, so they look and make them extra nice. And I got every color under the sun. Really? And I get to wear them in meetings. 
I don't have to wear a suit and tie. They're formal. I can wear rocking with jeans, walking, rocking with uh, slacks. And I'm putting Chacabanas on the map. I, I'm not even going to give commercial time. You know who you are. I love you. <laughs> so unless you're going to spend money on my friend Charlie's podcast. There we go. Because I need it. I need yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> but um, uh, just great work out there. You have young, young black and Latino tailors mm. doing uh, some great work. Uh, in the heights. So. That's interesting. You know, as you're telling me that, I'm, I'm looking at your shirt. It looks like, you know, you just threw on paint, man. It looks perfect. Yeah, and I love it. I love the, the, the all the different colors. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good stuff. So I'm trying to keep up with your, your style, man. Because no, I don't know if you guys know this or not. But Charlie likes to wear a dress down here. <laughs> but outside, you think he walked out of GQ magazine. Hey. That's a fact, and your fans know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the fans. You know the Cause, fans. Because I got all these fans. You got all these fans, Charlie. I'm mad. I actually, I, I actually sub post, because I'm, I'm a hater by nature. See, so whenever I post, I have a friend who can post a, a picture of a torn fingernail on the floor and say something along the lines of. There she goes, nature on the ground, and get 5,000 likes. There we go. I put a picture of a newborn in me, and it's like two likes. Oh, my God. <laughs> and Charlie knows exactly who I'm talking about. You know, that, uh, that damn algorithm, man, yeah, is just, that, man. It's just so yeah. disappointing to, to humanity, man. <laughs> but, um, you know, so, well, again, I'm, I'm glad that you're here, um, you know, came through with some cigars, you know, because a guy like you... Can smoke some cigars, man. Yeah. How long have you been smoking cigars? I was 16. Really? Yeah, first cigar I had, believe it or not. I always wanted to smoke because it was a... I always liked the, the smell of it. They had a neighbor mm. who had cigars, an older an older man, one of the last whites to live on my block. Literally, I think he was the old dub, the original white and the last white, the LW, mm. to live on, on Creston. And this old Jewish guy would always have a cigar, and I loved the smell. And I said, really? I can't wait. So my father had a box from, of cigars when I was born that well, he didn't know about cigars because my father hated cigars. Right. They were stale and I would always put them in my mouth and hide them. Mm. But they were nasty. Interesting. So when I finally got a chance, at 16, I was in the Yankee clubhouse as right. a bad boy. Yeah. And our boss would have cigars. So one day I asked him for one and he gave it to me and I lit up. Who's, who's your boss? Steinbrenner? Who's your boss? No, the clubhouse manager. <laughs> Mr. Kukuza. You know who you are. Gotcha. So, um... And I and I remember just enjoying it since I was sixteen years old. And um, you know, you would you would hide it from your dad because my dad sees me. I'm, even now, I'm forty three. My dad sees me having a cigar. I'm throwing the cigar across the street. It never happened. Right, 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 right. Of course. <laughs> but I just love the I love the flavor. Uh, I've gone a long time without them actually. Um, then I go back to them. I like trying different flavors and uh, trying different regions, different countries. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And as you know, Charlie, it's a, it's something that is meditating. Yeah. And when you don't overdo it, it's relaxing. Right, yeah. You know, I think for me, I can't overdo it. My immune system doesn't allow it, especially during the winter. Uh, you know, it's just too harsh. Um, in the summertime, I, I tend to smoke more cigars. Um, but, but man, I've, you know, cigars and whiskey or cigars and like a good cup of coffee in the morning on a Sunday morning, you know, with a good book. Like, I don't think there's anything better than that. I agree. 100%. Yeah, yeah. I think about all the friends we have that are in the business, yeah, right? They've yeah, opened yeah. up businesses all over the Yeah, the shout city. out to Junior, you know? Yeah, they're doing yeah. good work. And yeah, yeah. Uh, this is the place where people come and speak, and a lot of good meetings happen with cigars. Of course. Some guys play golf a lot. I don't play golf. Mm. Some guys have cigars, and I do the cigars. Right. I've always said that if someone invites you 
to uh, have a cigar with them is because they actually like you as a person. Yeah, because this is this is not a cigarette where, you know, you're rushing to, to, to get it done and, and, you know, you're you smoke that cigarette within two, three minutes. Like a cigar takes, what, like 45 minutes, an hour sometimes? Of course. You know, so you're pretty much committing yourself to being 45 minutes in this person's presence. Right. Like that should say something, right? I agree. I always thought of a good cigar as like real love because a good cigar, you could step away from it for a few seconds for, you know, some time. But when you come back, upon your return, it's still burning, you know? Yeah, that's true. You know, so, I never thought of that. Yeah. It's interesting. What's your favorite cigar? Oh, my favorite is this one here. The Oliva 5 Melanio. Okay. This cigar is really good. Really? Yeah. What is it? it like, for more country? Like, um, this is a, a Nicaraguan Dominican, mm. I believe. Mm. This is my favorite cigar. You know, I'm going to leave this one for you here. My brother. I want you to enjoy it. It's really Man. good. My favorite. You Thank you so it. much. Thank you so You're much. Welcome, Have you ever been to Cuba? I've never been to Cuba. Okay. Well, for political reasons? No, I just never been. I've okay. never been. I've never been to Cuba. <laughs> you know, I, cause I, know, I, know, I know you did, you know, you, you dabble in politics, man. And, I you know, I always have to ask that, you know, because a lot of folks want to go to Cuba behind closed doors. Yeah, but. I, I know. I know my Cuban brothers in Florida wouldn't want me to go. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's interesting. But, no, I haven't gone. If, if they ever open up relations with Cuba, that's an incredible argument. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think about that all the time, Charlie, the Cuban issue. Mm-hmm. And, and how our Cuban brothers in Florida feel about Cuba and the power. And the power, right? Of the, of the Cuban people in Florida is incredible. <sighs> man. It's really incredible, man. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, you know, it's like the power is evident as far as the Republican vote is like it's ensured. That because as long as you have Cubans out there, you know, they're going to vote a certain way and they have their philosophy and it's like ingrained. ingrained. Charlie, I got to push back a little, bro. And I, I, hope, I hope that's what I'm doing. Yeah, no, no, so you push, of course, of course. So the Cuban people to me are, are a fascinating group. You know, I'm half Cuban, right? I didn't know that. No, I'm joking. Oh. But <laughs> they're, they're, my great grandfather is. It was, okay. Oh, that's cool. So I didn't know that. But the Cuban American people to me, are incredibly fascinating. First, mm. their experience is very different right. from my parents from the Dominican of course, Republic of course. and from my Mexican brothers and our Puerto Rican brothers. Every, you know, I teach Latino studies at BMCC and yeah. been there for a very long time. And uh, we talk a great deal. I teach this class called the Latino Experience in the United States. And we spend a semester examining the different Latino ethnic groups in the United States. Mm-hmm. We look at their experiences, American intervention in their politics, and how... That created an environment for massive immigration from those countries. And, you know, when we get to Cuba, you know, Mr. Gonzalez, Juan Gonzalez, who wrote the book Harvest of Empire, which is our textbook in the class, you know, writes about them in a very interesting way. They had a lot of, um, they, they obviously, the majority of them come during the, during the Castro Revolution. Right. And many of the people that come left because uh, they lost their businesses. Mm-hmm. They lost their property. They lost their homes because of the revolution and the right. redistribution of the land, etc. So when they come here, the United States immediately. Why didn't you? Why didn't you mention some of them were also in bed with American capitalists? No, they were. The right, people. Right, right. No, no. Wait, wait. Oh, I'm a capitalist, so that. I mean, that right, right. You yeah, know, so, but it's okay. It's okay. No, no. I want to be clear. So if I'm, I didn't want to give the whole history. So during the Batista regime, it's true there were many American uh, businesses in Cuba, right. and, as you know. Casinos and businesses were incredibly uh, popular and mm-hmm. profitable. But, that, but I'm just talking about the Cubans when right. they leave. They come, and they come to Miami. You know, they received a, a many. They received m- many benefits from the American government because they provided intelligence to the United States. So you had the CIA giving support. They had citizenship fast tracked. A lot of benefits that other Latinos 
another Latino group studying that. Right. Okay. They're, they're, they're an interesting group, and without boring your audience with a history of um, a Cuban, the Cuban-American experience in Miami. I would like to think that my audience actually... Okay, because I could be boring, because I, I just feel like I'm getting, I'm getting... like My students are zoning out here. Right? No, I'm sorry. No, no. Please. But the reason I'm so fascinated with them is that they arrive in Miami and receive all of this incredible support from the federal government, which gives them an advantage, mm. an advantage that other Latino groups didn't have. The, right. the Chicanos were fighting discrimination in the Southwest. The African-Americans, as you know, were fighting uh, for civil rights in the East and in the Southeast. Um, you had uh, black Panamanians that were coming, facing incredible discrimination. They form an enclave in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. So they, they had an incredibly different experience. Now, as I say, it's better because they're escaping a revolution. So mm -hmm. let's get that out of the way. But politically, the the... the the Cuban people fell away from the Democratic Party during President Kennedy's failed Bay of Pigs. That's mm -hmm. when the Cubans said, you know, you told our young people to get ready to invade. You said, you promised that you were going to support us. You said that if we volunteered when invaded, you were going to be there for us, and you left us stranded. Really? So they flipped from the Democrats under Kennedy to supporting Nixon and the Republicans then. Mm. And, and the support that they've received from the Republican Party is being hardcore anti-Castro through the years, even through Reagan... You got a lot of Republican Cubans, but, but colorism affects all of our Latino groups. So I hope we talk about that a little more. Cuba, Cuban Americans have the, the same colorism that our people do from the Dominican Republic. Right. And we see divisions in Miami between the registered Republicans and Democrats. Not all my Cubans in Miami are Republicans. There's a good percentage of them that are Democrats. They have figured out something that Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, Mexican-Americans, Salvadorians, no other Latino group has figured out. They figured out in order to make it in the United States and be valuable, you got to split your vote. you got to be valuable. you got to look at both parties and say, you, gotta come in for, you have to come for me, and you have to court me. And you know what they do? They end up voting for a Republican congressman, a Democratic mayor, a Democratic state senator, a Democratic assemblyman, Republican U.S. senator. They split their ticket. They don't give their vote out to just one party so that they're not considered to be in the pocket of any one party. Mm. That's why everybody trips over themselves to make sure that they cater to the concerns of that community. You know, and as far as, as, far as Latino groups go, when we want to measure the success of a Latino group, there's different things you can measure. You can measure uh, business ownership. Dominicans in New York City have incredible mm -hmm. small business ownership percentages yep. across the city. You can look at what are the percentages in the media. How many of us are in the media? How many of us are actors and actresses? How many of us are making a mark in education? We could do all sorts of things. How many of us graduate from college, etc.? Mm -hmm. One of the metrics that, that, that we also use is what has been our contributions to the political discussion in the United States? That's an incredible metric. That's an incredible metric because having a seat at the table, being a, being in the room where it happens from the play of uh, Hamilton's play, uh, being in the room where it happens matters. And the Cuban people figured it out. And because they split their ticket, they have had successes that no other Latino group has had politically. In 2016, two Cuban Americans running for president. They have had Cuban governors. Not they have several Cuban governors. Currently, they have two. They have three Cuban U.S. senators. Now, but in previous elections as well, they had even more senators. They've had almost every single mayor in Miami since the beginning. So when we examine the successes of the Cubans, they figured out how to be successful politically. The, port, the Dominican people just got their first Congress member, and we've been here since the 40s. Mm. So we just got our congressman. The same, our first congressman was also our first assembly member. So 
the Dominican people are slow to the game when it comes to vamos pa'lante. And it's, I think it's something for us to think about and talk about. I'd like to talk about that with you. Yeah, JC, but like, let me ask you this. How much of that, this power that the Cuban people have in this country have to deal with Fidel Castro, the man himself? The fact that, you know, um, it was in the best interest of the, of the United States to invest in, in these Cubans because in these Cubans who could provide leadership, who can provide, you know, class, classified information as to how to overthrow Fidel Castro, undermine his, his regime, right? It's, it's almost like as if there was an interest. There was a self-interest that made them valuable for, for the United States. And that's why they got that. That's right. What, that's yeah, the first but, thing I said. Right. So, yeah, that's the first thing you said. But as far as, like, people, I think Dominicans are just as politically inclined. Not as politically successful, bro. Oh, no, but not politically, because we don't have the same migration experience. Like, the U.S. wasn't looking at the, at the Dominican Republic as, as a place where, like, like, we just lost them. Maybe I'm looking at it through a lens of, like, anti-colonialism, um, where, where I'm saying, okay, the U.S. can still exploit the Dominican Republic, therefore, we don't need the help of the Dominican-American people to make that happen, as opposed to in Cuba, you need the help of the Cuban-American people to actually go into Cuba and actually create a market, because right now, the Cuban people themselves are not allowing this to happen. The Cuban-American people know that. They know that um, not only does the U.S. stand to benefit if the leadership is overthrown in Cuba, but they themselves can be can be in a better position because they can be maybe ambassadors or put in, in political leadership positions in Cuba uh, that that you know enforce policies that that uh, that help out the United States as well. Charlie, if that were true, they wouldn't want to stop any negotiations. They wouldn't if 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 the Cuban Americans were valuable to the extent that you're saying as far as overthrowing the Cuban regime, then they want intervention. They don't get any intervention at all. They want no intervention. The Cuban Americans are so important to the American political discussion that we, we can't even discuss going over there. We can't even discuss uh, having relations with Cuba. Right. Now, we have relations with Vietnam. We have relations with China. Mm. These are places that we've either fought or are in constant um, threat of going to fight against eventually. And we have trade agreements with other places. We travel to places where we have disagreements with. We can't travel to Cuba. Mm. And that is because of a few zip codes in Miami who don't want it to happen. And no one wants to cross that vote. We gotta remember that President Obama did win Florida. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of a lot of Cubans supported him as well in his in his reelection. So 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 what was that about? Because uh, Obama had Obama in the second term, right? Obama in his second term decided to go in there and open up an embassy and open up relations. Okay. And that caused problems with the older Cubans. But the Cuban vote uh, what I was talking about earlier, the Cuban vote continues to split 50-50 yeah. regularly. Um, and I think that Obama, when President Obama, when he decided to go into Cuba, a lot of a lot of the conservative older Cubans, a lot of the maybe first-generation Cubans were concerned and angry about that. But what I've noticed is that your second and third and even fourth-generation Cuban, it tends to be more liberal than mm -hmm. their grandfathers and yeah. their dads before them. So... Especially if they went to school. Especially if they were, yeah, especially if they have been exposed to some of some other issues. Right. But it's something that I, I'm telling you, and, 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 I, and, I, and everywhere I go, I talk about it. I said, the Cuban-American experience, recently, they're onto something that I hope Dominican, Puerto Rican, and, and Chicanos and other groups start realizing. The Chicanos are figuring it out. You know, I'm not a Trump guy, and, 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 and I think you know that. Mm -hmm. Some mm -hmm. of the people that, that are hearing this know that as well. Mm -hmm. But there is a... a county in southwestern Texas that is solidly Latino that 
President Obama won by double digits. Hillary won by double digits. Biden lost by five points. Mm. That's a community that once had a Republican congressman named Henry Bonilla. And and I think that we're seeing some Chicanos in, t- in Texas start splitting their ticket. They just elected um, uh, a Mexican Republican to Congress. They're starting to split their ticket again in some parts of Texas. And what I've started to see is that the older generation of Mexican-Americans and Chicanos are also splitting their ticket. They'll mm. vote for Biden and vote for a Republican for Congress. They're picking up on it. I really hope other Hispanic groups start thinking about how to become more valuable as an electorate. You know, and I hate to blanket, you know, because all of that is, is really good information, but I hate to blanket or should I say temper this conversation based on race. You know, colorism, as you mentioned before, is a real thing. Oh, Dominicans, wow. you know, we come in different shades. Yeah. Cubans, you know. Same experience. They're cousins. They're cousins. They're uh, cousins but, but like, like you, wouldn't, you wouldn't think that Cubans, for the most part, as a group, tend to be more European in features? <clears throat> no, the because yeah, we, the ones that came here, yeah, of course, the ones that came here were uh, almost exclusively the well-to-do white elites that came originally, right. of course. Right. The, 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 when you look at a country, the Cuba is a sister country to the Dominican Republic in weather and soil and, and in the demographic makeup. So in the Dominican Republic, we have uh, colonial descendants of the white elites as well, and so do they. Uh, they had a large group of them came over in 59 um, and in the early 60s. Uh, and later on is when we saw the of colors come in, right? The right. Afro-Latino Cubans. But racism in Cuba is hardcore. Right, but I just wonder if colorism did play a major part in why more Cubans have succeeded. On, on top of the fact that their migration experience was different and the relationship to Fidel Castro was pretty divisive, um, you know, with the United States. A lot of them came because they were running away because their businesses were being taken, you know, and from homes, them. And homes. And, and homes. And, and when you want to talk about colorism and, and folks that own businesses in these countries, uh, many of them were descendants of Europeans, yes. right, in, yep, in Cuba. Uh, the same thing in Mexico. You know, many of them, you know, and look, Mexico has, has a companion. I mean, Mexico, you know, Mexican-Americans at one point had a companion case to the Department, uh, I think, Department Board of Education. I think it was San Antonio District. Hernandez case. Hernandez case where Mexicans were trying to uh, appeal to the United States Supreme Court. It was a and precursor what, for Brown. Right, precursor, but but they wanted to be identified as white Americans, and 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 the U.S. and the U.S. denied them and said no, you have indigenous blood, therefore you are inferior. It doesn't matter how small that percentage is. I got to take a look at the language in the case. Right, the right. Hernandez case that dealt with the separate but equal. Issue. Right. I want to make sure the language is there. I'm not familiar with that language, but if, if it's there, that's interesting because you did have Chicanos. Um, uh, Chicanos, and this is interesting, uh, there, were, there were many Chicanos that participated in Eisenhower's Operation Wetback, mm. that derogatory term, that they were angry that they were losing their jobs to migrant workers from the South. Right. And then if they saw the tactics that were being used, some of those tactics were racial profiling of undocumented uh, immigrants and seasonal workers and migrant workers that stayed over the Bracero program that, right. that extended their time. Right. And they, they also wanted them out, but they didn't like the racial profiling. And while it was happening, changed their minds, but it was too late. There are many stories like that, so I wouldn't doubt what you're saying. I just mm. haven't seen the language. Yeah. Colorism Freaking is interesting. Colorism, yeah. You know, and that's what... Because the white like, Cubans that are, they're all white Cubans, the people that I mentioned. And when you look at Senators Cruz, Senator Rubio, when you look at... Um, even here in Senator Menendez in New Jersey, he's yeah. a white Cuban as well. So, you know, your, your, your position on colorism, I guess, and especially with Latinos, I think that's an interesting point. That's an interesting point to my, my argument about political power. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, we have seen uh, incredible successes by black and African-Americans mm. in this country 
And I hope that, that somehow that extends to the Latino community yeah. moving forward. For sure, for sure. Me too. But we're in the middle of a pandemic, brother. How have you been dealing with this? Not to not to like abrasively uh, you no, know switch topics, but but I but I also want to you know no, my get to know how you're doing, how your family's doing. We're we're doing great. Thank okay, God. we've lost a, a couple of friends. I've lost because of COVID, um, and that's unfortunate. My condolences. I mean, yeah, these are really good people that that um, that died because of COVID early on when it hit. But my family has been healthy. Kids are healthy. Everyone is healthy now. You know, it's interesting because as you know, the court system we've now moved to computers and zoom mm-hmm. and we have all our hearings now on zoom i know and uh, all my classes are on zoom and how is how's having classes because i know you mentioned that you teach and you've been teaching for how long 20 years 20 years <laughs> but you're like 25 brother how can you be teaching for t- you're teaching at five three i started teaching at 22 at truman high school in the bronx really yeah wow look at that and came out to Boricua college and now i'm at cuny i've been there since 07 really yeah. So um, and you still you still like it? I mean, I, I would assume it, so. Man. It's the best job in the world. Really, I'd encourage anyone who's ever thought about it to do it. If I could go back in time and if I could afford it, um, I couldn't afford it. But if I could afford it, teaching in the public school systems was the best job on earth. Yeah, you changed the lives of so many people, and a lot of those people stay in contact with you so many years yeah. later, and they're on my Instagram, my Facebook, and I see their successes. Um. Some continue to be incredible people, like Remy Salas. I don't know. Remy Salas. He was What's my up, brother? student at Truman High School, man. Really? Here, yeah. And then I saw him. He, uh, one yeah. of those kids that I saw a lot of potential in. Yeah, look at him now. Yeah, look at him now. He teaches it with me in my department. Right, right. Working on the Biden-Harris campaign. Yeah, he was out there in Florida. Out there in Florida. Yeah. Worked with the mayor's office for a mm-hmm. long time. Was in private practice. Good stuff, man. Yeah, yeah, that's So awesome. you see a lot, like, like him... There are about 30 others. And you think back, you're like, wow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's incredible. That's an incredible job. I love teaching because you get to, to make a difference in the lives of people. You get to talk to smart people. You get to, mm-hmm. to you know, kids that, that most people don't have any hope for. Mm-hmm. You turn out that they are brilliant and they have, they're full of potential and all you needed to do is tap it. And one of the things I wanted to tell you was I was inspired as a young man in 88 when I saw Stand and Deliver with my dad at, at Lowe's Paradise Theater in the Bronx. And I saw Jaime Escalante teach, and I just loved his style. Mm. So to this day, in Latino 150 at CUNY, we watch Stand and Deliver, and we break it down. Interesting. And we see his, his Escalante's teaching style, how he brought the best out of the students, how he connected with the students, um, how he worked against a system that thought they were designed to fail, and yeah. how he connected with them culturally. And right, right. It's an incredible movie. I don't know if your viewers have, or your listeners have watched it, but I'd encourage you. It's on Netflix right now, Stand okay. and Deliver. All right. A great film on on achievement, students, racism, colorism, and uh, and poor and poverty and the impact of poverty on, on students. So you know, teaching on Zoom has been tough. I love the classroom. Teaching on Zoom is not the same. Mm. What do you mean when well, it's not we were, the same? We were trained. You know, we were trained to teach in. Um, the, we we were trained to do distance learning. So, you know, teaching online. It's interesting because you use Blackboard and you use these other new technologies, but if you're not into that and you like your classroom, it's tough. Mm. Especially when you have policies that don't make you turn, tell your students to turn their cameras on. That's ridiculous. It's hard because I'm teaching there to just me, one other person, or three other people in some cases, and like 40 black windows. So what's the rationale? No, but what's the rationale behind, uh, you know, allowing students to have a black screen? How do you know they're even there? I don't know if they're there. Chances are they're not. Sometimes I've called on them repeatedly. The rationale is... I'm sorry, this is college, right? College. Because now you're teaching at college, right? Yeah. 
They can't. You can't for. They could be. Um, the rationale is that that's their safe space. They could be in a bathroom. They could. They may not be comfortable with turning on their cameras. They may be in a room where there are other people, and not to make them uncomfortable. And I understand the the touchy stuff. And I even I'll even make that announcement. I'll tell them I can't make you. I understand, and I go through the list of all the reasons why they can't. But if you're just sitting there. It would be great if you could turn your camera on and I'll take my hat off. And I say, look, my hair is a mess and Fabiola's hair is a mess <laughs> and we're here together and we're doing it and it doesn't work. <laughs> Man, you know, you know, as you talk about that, I remember watching a video that went viral. Uh, a young boy was, uh, you know, sitting down while his teacher was uh, teaching and it, I think his mother or his father was walking around naked oh. and the teacher was like, shut your camera off right oh. now, right now. That's funny. But <laughs> there you have the one So much is happening smoking oh my god drinking that's great well you know what you know i always said smoking is conducive to learning you know like i i absorb my information better when i smoke what's funny is you mentioned that he there he is vaping like a madman and i asked him a question and he got really deep yeah yeah (laughs) vape away young man vape away (laughs) touching the gods that's what's up man that's what's up Man, I can imagine you being like an awesome teacher, man. Because, like, you, you know, it. you're fucking funny, man. I love it. Yo, like you're one of, uh, you know, and I'm not saying this because you're in front of me. You're, you're one of my favorite people that I follow on IG. Ah, thank you, man. Like I your memes you. are hilarious, bro. Thank you. I just steal them. I spam People find funny. <laughs> I wish I could make memes, but I'm not that technologically savvy. I think about I memes think all you day. are, my man. Mind is sap- my mind is on me. Like, I think memes all day long. Yeah. I'm like, I can't make these things. Or the videos are even tougher to make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I think about it. It's just Instagram is a, such a great place. Yeah. It's the best out of all the social media. Twitter sucks. Because Twitter people are so mean. Have mm-hmm. you been on Twitter recently? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, people are so mean. You got the president yelling and saying nasty things. People defending him. Other people getting nasty. You're just like, what am I doing? You, you, you say anything. Everybody wants to attack you. Mm-hmm. It's like, you can... I could say something along the lines that, guys, the election's over. Let's unite as a country. Oh, forget Why about you it. say that four years ago? You yeah. didn't say it. I'm like, oh, man, yeah, I yeah. did. What are you talking about? It's not everything's so evil, but Instagram is like therapy. Because mm. Instagram, you go, you see pictures of families, people have new relationships. You see kids. People laugh. There's comedy. It's such a great place. It is. It is. Uh, it is. I a like good, it. You know? There's nothing. There's no. Com- I haven't been in any combative space on Instagram. Maybe because of the people I follow. I don't even, I just don't see it as a place where people go in there and start yelling at each other. Yeah, you know, but images do something to me. Like they, you know, they, they carry energy with them. So, you know, I, maybe that's because of the people that I, that I was following. You know, like I, I follow folks that are very aware of what's going on and when it comes to police brutality and, you know, empowerment of, of people of color. Um, but, there, you know, there was a young brother that I truly respect. And and I admire him on a, on a personal level, uh, but the brother was so about it that I, I like I had to unfollow him because I would. Uh, there was one Sunday morning he posted a, an image of a young kid being lynched by uh, you know a mob in the South back in the, like the nineteen twenties and thirties, and I'm like, bro, this is a Sunday morning, and I get it. We need to know, but not that's not. I don't think that's healthy. No, I agree with you. That's, yeah, I, I, maybe I don't use it for that. I use it honestly as a relief. It's great to go on and see yeah. uh, pictures of you and, yeah. and, 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 and things that you may be doing. And yeah. I think that it's just a different place. I don't follow those people. Maybe, right. maybe my algorithms. Right. Uh, well, good for you. Don't. Good for you. And you shouldn't. But, you know, I do like some, you know, the political statements people make. Yeah. I know that during the, the entire Black Lives Matter movement this summer, there were some incredible posts that I saw that were touching. 
uh, of, of things that I think would change hearts and minds. Right. Um, I think social media has created an environment where if you want to learn from other people, you can. I'm a Johnny-come-lately to the Black Lives Matter movement and to some of the issues that Black Lives Matter was right. uh, uh, discussing. And uh, through many conversations with friends and, and hearing what they have to say and reading their posts, uh, things became abundantly clear to me. Uh, and and I, I respect the opportunity to change hearts and minds through social media. Right, right. So you'd be surprised how many positive things come out of social media yeah. when, when you follow the right people and right. people are conscious that people are reading what you're writing and posting and... Good things happen, man. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I just think that as 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 folks that only have a limited amount of energy and time, yeah. sometimes you could get too consumed with it. And you know, just because it's good information, it doesn't mean they should dedicate a, a full afternoon <laughs> to like <laughs> reading. I hope not. You know, inspirational you know quotes what do you or do Facebook. You know, I try to um, only to keep up with like old friends from like uh, you know high school from the neighborhood. You know, family members that you know they tend to be on on Facebook. Um, you know, and yeah, so I only do that to just connect with them. The issue with Facebook, I started seeing a lot of fake news uh, yeah. articles, especially during the time when uh, Trump was you know, elected in 2016, yeah. you know, crooked Hillary this and, and just like a lot of conspiracy theories on Facebook. It was just too much. It was I like to think that Facebook is cracking down on that. I think they have, you know, I like the fact that they censored uh, Trump, uh, you know, when he was making these outlandish comments about there being mail fraud without providing you know, at least evidence, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think they were doing the right thing when it came to that. I don't, I'm not a big fan of censorship, but at some point, you know, you have to protect, you know, the minds of the people. But, but going back to Black Lives Matter, and I, I know um, you've always been a proponent of like Black Lives Matter, specifically when it comes to the Dominican Republic. Yeah. Like uh, you and I, we've had many conversations about Dominican Republic and Haiti. Oh, yeah. And I think you teach yeah, that subject as well, right? Republic. And I know you appreciate uh, Toussaint, you know? A great deal. A great deal, One yeah. Of my heroes. Really? If I didn't have eczema, <laughs> I tattooed Toussaint on my shoulder. Really? Toussaint is incredible for me. I teach um, the history of the Dominican Republic. As you know, I'm a black and white Dominican. Mm-hmm. And being a black and white Dominican... It's an interesting history. Um, you know, studying history now, you start seeing some of the things you saw growing up and mm-hmm. how people spoke. Yeah, 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 yeah. And my fascination with his, with uh, Dominican history was when I was playing baseball there at 16. Man, what an incredible place. The way um, the way people speak, the way people yeah, think, yeah. I found it to be interesting. You know, when I was 16, uh, Peña Gomez was running for president. Yeah. Brilliant, Brilliant man. Brilliant man. Yeah. And I almost was running for president, and there I was in Santiago, where my father's from. My father's a black Dominican. And just to be clear, Peña Gomez was black Dominican. Black Dominican. Right, for those that don't know. Yeah, yeah. and uh, Peña Gomez was one of the leaders of the PRD party. Uh, Peña Gomez was one of the civil rights leaders of the 1963 Constitution. Peña Gomez was down with Juan Bosch when he got elected. Mm-hmm. Peña Gomez was there, was the man. Uh, but Peña Gomez ran, and what I saw changed my life forever. I saw black Dominicans, like my father, not my father, like my father, passing out literature depicting Peña Gomez as a monkey. Yeah. Saying he's a black, he's not one of us. Mm-hmm. He's he's a, he's a dirty black. And I was just shocked at the yeah. language. And I was like, wait a minute. This language, I'm 16. This is a, this is a tough time. I'm like, this is really happening here? Like, I'm there with my black family. This is, this is, a, this is what people speaking like in the neighborhood. And it was really weird for me to see black people speak about black people that way and seeing how white people joined. And I saw a lot of anti-blackness then, mm-hmm. and it's always impacted me incredibly. And then everything started making sense. For your viewers that don't know, you know, 
and this is this is not castigating the entire uh, Dominican people, but uh, for a country that is over ninety percent Afro descendant, uh, has an incredible racial issue. For sure. Um, and we can go back and blame the Spaniards and colonialism, and we can start putting all the blame. But at some point, we got to take responsibility for what we say and what we do. For sure. But common in Dominican language are 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 things that people say that come out of a KKK general interest meeting. Yeah. Yeah, like, sure. don't, un prieto, don't bring a black person. Of la raza. Don't, don't delay the advancement of the race by going black. These are everyday things in the vernacular. Right. The, the way we talk about hair, skin, nose. Mm-hmm. My God. Don't yeah. traigo una morena. What the hell is going on? These are black people saying this. Right, right. So, um, I've had many, many black Dominican friends God. say that I'm, I'm going to be the only black Dominican in my household. Holy or shit. the only black person in my household. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't believe it. I'm shocked that... Uh, and, and, you know, the more you read, the more you study, the more you see where it comes from, who's responsible. And, and I'm one of those, you know I me, mean, at some point, Dominicans have to take responsibility. For sure. You know you black. You know you're black. You know if you don't want to claim blackness, don't claim it, but don't speak that way. Right. 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 Uh, and and it, it, it really hurts a lot of people, the way that our, that our women view their hair. Mm-hmm. Man, they'll spend hours in a hair salon. Mm-hmm. But, like, you know, you go to... The morning. My, my brother, but you go to a, a Dominican uh, neighborhood and... You know, what do you see the most? Salons. Salons. Get for it. And haircuts, barbershops. We have... we have, and, and you know what's interesting? I want the Dominican brothers and sisters to know. If you're listening here right now. It's not limited to us. I, mean, I tell this to my class because it's a Dominican history class. And it impacts me because it's how I grew up. And I saw the black and white experience firsthand. We're not talking about Hawao. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about Mulado and black. I'm talking about I come from a white and black punto household. So I've seen the worst of the worst on, on both sides. So I'm being honest when I tell you this. The same experience, that same colorism that exists, that same, uh, uh, unfortunately, self-inferiority that I see in our people, is not limited to Dominicans. Mm-hmm. We see it with every group of people. For sure. From people in the continent of Africa, um, and I've spoken to many of my students from Ghana who shared with me the same story that are in my class now, to our African-American brothers and oh. sisters in the United States. Oh. You know, we talk about Madam C.J. Walker a lot. The first American mil- uh, black woman millionaire, God bless her. And I tell my students, she's an incredible story. There's been movies, books, we'll talk about her all day long. Let's remember how she made her money. Yeah, the comb. She sold tan off and pro- products to make your skin lightener, to make your skin lighter, and hair products to make your hair more European. Yeah. So this is not limited to just the Dominican experience. It's right. also in every experience For that we sure. are. So we can study why and, yeah. and how that came to be. I got it. I yeah. understand. Trust me. We could talk about white supremacy, we could talk about white supremacy in the media, we could talk about every, and I'm down. But at some point, we have to take responsibility and say, hey, that's no, no way to talk, Dominicans. Right. That's no way to be. And we have to love ourselves, and we can't act that way because we're black. Mm-hmm. And the problem is this, when I speak to Dominicans, they tell me, oh, Polanco, it's because the Haitians occupied us for Right. For what, for 20 years? And, uh, and, really, bro? And Spain occupied you for how long? <laughs> This is 1492. No, and the, the, the sad thing is that when you talk to people that want to talk to me about Haitians, the reason why Charlie says I love Toussaint, he knows I love Toussaint, is when Toussaint marches into Santo Domingo in 1801, Charlie. When Toussaint marches in with his Haitian army into the city of Santo Domingo and reads his speech in the steps of the city, right in the city center, he says, from this moment on, slavery is abolished on this side of the island. He won... Abolition for his people on the other side. The Treaty of Basel made the whole island in 1795, made the whole island French. And on the eastern side, while the island was still French, 
He realized, hey, there's slaves here. So he walked in and freed every black and mulatto slave. So now I'm like, props to Toussaint. Right. And in 1804, heading into 1805, the French come in and occupy the eastern side and reinstitute slavery. You want to talk about a nightmare? So you had Spanish-speaking blacks and mulattoes who enjoyed freedom from 1801 to 1805. In 1805, get re-enslaved by the French, and they stay slaves from 1805 to 1809 when the Spanish, Spanish uh, Empire comes back in 1809. From 1809 to 1822, January, they still slaves. Guess who comes back, Charlie, in January of 1822 and abolishes slavery? Our Haitian brothers and sisters. Mm. So black and mulatto Dominicans, before they called themselves Dominicans, obviously, because the Dominican Republic was born, as you know, in 1844, but they had called themselves Dominicans for many years before that, were twice liberated from the bondages of slavery by our Haitian brothers and sisters. 1801 by Toussaint, 1822 by Boyer. Sure, the 22 years were unfair. Sure, the 22-year occupation was filled with things that were unfair to the Spanish-speaking folk. Haiti didn't let us go to Catholic masses. They redistributed the land. They, all the stuff that we want to talk about, yes, yes, yes. But for those 22 years, there was no slavery. For those 22 years, the race class based system ended. For those 22 years, for 99% of the country, life was much better than it was beforehand. Mm -hmm. And that is something that I think Dominicans don't realize. And guess what, Charlie? Not, again, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm getting professorial. Nah. In the proclamation, Keep going. we have a situation here. The proclamation of 1861. President Santana, who, by the way, was the first president of the Dominican Republic. It wasn't Duarte. When Pedro Santana, in 1861, speaks to Leopold O'Donnell, the prime minister of Spain, and says, hey, I can't do this independence thing. I need help. And Spain comes back and recolonizes the Dominican Republic. The Dominican Republic loses its independence in 1861 when it becomes a colony of Spain. Do you know Leopold O'Donnell had no idea that it was a black uh, colony? He thought it because Santana told him it was Catholic and Spaniards and right. he spoke Spanish. Well, his people realized, hey, this is a black place. These people wouldn't even qualify for citizenship back home. Mm. So they institute a racist-based, a race class-based system. The blacks on the island revolt. The blacks on the eastern side, led by Gregorio Luperon, proud black Dominican, and another guy named Ulysses Haro, who ends up being a dictator later on, they create an army that is no longer just white and upper class. Now it crosses every part of DR. It crosses pop, poor, mulatto, black, white, rich, and they get together and they declare the war of the restoration of the Republic. And they beat the shit out of the Spaniards. I'm sorry for cursing. Yeah, that's fine. They beat the Spaniards in the war of the restoration and get their independence back from the Spaniards, okay? After reinstituting a racist space system. I'm sitting here and I'm like, so you're, you're angry at the Haitians for what happened in 1822, even though I just told you about 1801 and 1822 and how we abolished slavery, but the Haitians abolished slavery twice. But you have no problem with your Spaniards that came back right. and reinstituted. So we have some real problems. A lot of that has to do with Trujillo changing the curriculum to make it more white and, and anti-black. The Proceso de Blanquimiento, right? Yeah, Blanquinization and, and an essay written by Manuel Battle called The Policy Sense that really codified what Trujillo wanted to do with whitening the country from making whites the image that you saw in every travel brochure from making sure that every statute in the Dominican Republic represents a white person and not a mulatto or a black, from making sure that he perms his hair weekly, that wears white powder and eyeliner to appear more European, uh, to um, deporting all blacks out of the country, including many from the Bahamas that used to come work in seasonal jobs in the Canary Islands that would work seasonal jobs, from encouraging immigration from Europe and deporting blacks again, 
and and ultimately, who can forget the Massacre River incident of 1937, yeah. when historians claim that up to 15,000, I have seen some more liberal professors put that number at 25,000, Haitians, men, women, and children were killed at the border on the Dahabon River that separates Haiti and the Dominican Republic because he wanted to widen the country. What's crazy about that experience for me is that the, the Dominican Republic, and this, this is, hurts me because I know that my the listeners and my students that may be listening know that I'm very pro-America and I get bipolar sometimes. But this hurts me because in 1937, when Trujillo wanted to do this to the blacks, what he did was, according to Michelle Walker, who wrote an incredible book called Why the Cox Fight, and Why the Cox Fight is about this issue here, the black and Haitian struggles. She's a white journalist that went out there, spent many years, and wrote about it objectively. I think everyone here should take a look at it. Um, but she wrote about this experience, and she said that what Duhillo did was he wanted to confuse the world and the United States. The United States had occupied the DR from 1916 to 1924. One of the things they did when the occupation happened was confiscate all the weapons from the civilians and only allow the military to have guns. So when he put this plan together to kill all these Haitians along the river, he didn't want his army to use guns. Because if they used guns, then the United States and the countries around the world would know that this incredible capitalist democratic leader of the Dominican Republic, Trujillo, was a killer. Nobody wanted to deal with a killer. So what he does is that he gives his military machetes and sticks. Mm -hmm. That way, he, he takes their uniforms away and gives them chacabanas, or what we call guayeveras over there, um, so that when they go out and do this uh, incredible genocide against the Haitian people along the border, he can also always claim the campesinos did it. It wasn't me. Mm -hmm. So he would, Michelle Walker claims that they would get drunk the night before the killings, and then he would have them go out there and do this. Men, women, and children, as they ran back across the border to go back to Haiti, because they had been along the border and they they were crossing over to the Dominican Republic, and some of them had problems with Dominicans, and there were some issues with stealing cows and chickens. That was the excuse. Right. As they were going back, they would be killed on the spot for 21 days, three yeah. weeks of a massacre. As the Haitians went to get support from a, from a police officer, they would be killed on the spot. And many black Dominicans were also killed. So you may be asking, how would you be able to tell who was a black Dominican and who was a black Haitian? They, yeah, they used to use the, right, the, yeah. the, the parsley test. You know, when you say parsley, in, 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 and if you're a Haitian and someone shows you a parsley, because of the Creole French accent, it sounds like pewe. Mm. So pewe, you immediately know the dude is Haitian. Right, that was right. the test they used. This is one of the things he did to blankenize the country. Right. This was terrible. So this is the this is where our grandfathers come from. Right. Our grandfathers, our great grandfathers, uh, they come from a curriculum that teaches them that white is better. Right. They, that he wrote. Right. They they come from an experience like this where they see that you know they they've been taught that they're inferior. Right. And then. This this here, because of censorship, we didn't get the truth behind what happened. We got that they were causing problems and that Dominicans revolted. Of like our form of Jim Crow laws. Right. Yeah. And what happened here was that we didn't know this because of the censorship. But in 1989, President Reagan declassified a memorandum written. And by the way, for those of you, my students know, but if you are wondering where you can find this this. Uh, um, memo. Uh, it, it, professors Inoa and Sagas wrote a book called The Dominican People, A National History. It's a documentary history book with all the documents. There you could get the cover letter to he wrote to the Marines to get into the program. You could get letters from Columbus. But there's a, there is a declassified 1989 document where the United States at the moment, in 1937, I'm talking about our intelligence officers on the ground were writing about the Massacre River 
what was happening, how it was happening, and who was responsible for it, and why were they using sticks. I mean, the United States knew it was happening and did nothing about it. It kills me to this day that we didn't do anything about it. It bothers me, it hurts me to the soul to know that we knew this. But in 1989, it's declassified. I teach my students that we're reading this. And all the time that Trujillo thought he was lying to us, we knew what he was doing. Mm -hmm. Because we have actual demos written at the moment in 1937. So much so, Charlie, that eventually he was found to be responsible for the killings. And he had to pay pennies on the dollar for each body that he... And they call it the Massacre River, for for your listeners, because... The bodies, as they were thrown into the river, you know, bodies rise when you put them in water. The so you would have all the bloody water, all yes, the blood, yes. and all the bodies rise. Can you imagine that? Bro, so I actually walked that, that, that bridge um, with a uh, Haitian uh, doctor, and, uh, and we spoke about that. And, uh, and it was a, one of the most impactful conversations I've ever had, because he was also really well-versed on the history. Uh, you know, and... Uh, and, and we spoke about how much, uh, you know, Trujillo at the time had paid, which was pennies on the dollar, um, you know, for, for the lives that he took. Uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a tremendous blemish on, in Dominican history. Wow. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and it also forces me to think, think about how many Dominicans were ingrained, you know, and I say we because I'm a product of that, right? And I've also had to unlearn uh, many of the biases uh, growing up, you know. Um, I was fortunate that I was raised in Harlem and, you know, I grew up around a lot of African-Americans. And so so whenever I would go to the Dominican Republic and I would see that treatment, it would really shock me. It would shock me to the bone. I remember I used to go to the Dominican Republic and some of my friends that were as darker as, as, as the Haitians, they were throwing rocks at the Haitians. And at that time, I was like, what the fuck is going on? I wonder how many Dominicans um, still feel that uh, anything close to black would, you know, even though they're not living under those exigent circumstances where their life can be taken away from them for being confused as a Haitian, how that is passed down through trauma, you know, where uh, you, you feel that you're less of because you're, you're, you're dark skin. And that comes, you know, from many, many, many years. And again, the man himself, you know, as you, as you mentioned, would wear makeup to appear lighter in cameras, you know, to portray this, this image of himself. I'm talking about Sammy Sosa or Trujillo? As far as Sammy Sosa, you know, I have a good friend, Claudio, shout out to him. He's going to be on the show eventually. He wrote a, a really good article about how not to blame too much Sammy Sosa because we also did that to Sammy Sosa. We told him that he was inferior. We, we, we told him that, that he, you know, when I say we, I'm talking about the Dominican culture. You know, we, we put him down for being darker and, and, you know, he internalized that. So, at the, you know, he's not the only party that we should... Uh, blame because obviously we all have utility, but the culture did this to Sammy Sosa. He was also victimized by the culture. But anyway, it, it's so powerful that what you're saying, and I feel that the younger Dominicans, Dominican Americans, are are getting hip to you know to the game, and many of us are, are having very uh, important but yet uncomfortable conversations with our older relatives that we love deeply, oh, that we love deeply. I, I had to yeah, have a very man. uncomfortable conversation Ooh. with. One of the most favorite people that I've ever had in my life, which is my grandmother, may, may God rest her soul. And, you know, and she made a comment and we had to talk about it. Um, and, and, and again, and it, it, now it's, it's not as aggressive as saying, you know, at the, you know, at the malito, whatever. But it's more about, you know, the, the microaggressions, the hair, the, you know, oh, like, are you sure? You know, we're progressing 
in dialogue. We're too slow, Charlie. Yeah. Charlie, I hear you. Uh, yeah. I, I hear you the whole time I'm late. I feel you. Let me let me, Charlie. Charlie, we're too slow to the game, Charlie. Yeah, yeah. Charlie, our African-American brothers and sisters, with all the skin lightener stuff that I told you about a little with Adam C.J. Walker, there was a civil rights movement in the United States where African-Americans said, yo, yeah, we got to be accepted here, right? And they fought and they, they claimed uh, civil rights. And we are standing on the shoulders of African-American giants that made this happen. And Chicanos in, in the southwestern portion of the United States. The Dominican Republic has to wake up already. It's too much for yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And I hear it too much. I hear, I hear, you know, I hear your boy. And I'm going to read his article. I'm sure he's smart. But I, I want to just say, Sammy Sosa knew better. Sammy Sosa knew better. He knew how many black Dominicans viewed him as a hero. It's like Celia Cruz. She knew how much she meant to black Latinas. To the very end, she was proud of her blackness. Right. She wouldn't do that. Why would Sammy Sosa do that? I understand what you're... And I'm gonna but Sammy it. Sosa and I, you know, you and I have a privilege that Sammy Sosa didn't. Like, we were raised in a country that was exposed to the civil rights movement. They, he wasn't. Right? Like, that, that's a lot. And that's, that's and that shapes our consciousness. So, yes, I agree with you that we need to be hip to the game. I guess... How you know the, the the question is what do we have to do to export the civil rights you know liberties the rights the consciousness that 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 we were able to obtain because of the struggles of our African American brethren it's how can we export that out there in the Dominican Republic Charlie it's happening now I see it on social media yeah for sure I see a lot of more Dominicans accept their blackness and you know what it's important and and, and you know we this is such a fun podcast I appreciate being here today Charlie appreciate um, you having you man. You know, we have to accept, you know, a lot of us are black. Not all of us. A lot of us Dominicans are black. We are descendants from Africa. And I see more and more Dominicans embracing that. That's not to say, and this is, um, again, if you are listening, this is not, to, this is not, I'm not saying this, and I'm in politics, so if anybody ever wants to use this against me in a campaign, I want to make sure this is closure. This is not for purposes of division. This is purpose of education mm. and, and having a discussion. We are black, but we're not African-American. African American is a unique experience that we are that we are have benefited a lot from African American struggles being immigrants to the United States. We are black but not African American. Um, African Americans are black but they're not Afro Latinos. We happen to be Afro Latinos and we here in, in this United States. And I start seeing Dominicans embracing their blackness a lot more, and that's a great thing. Right. Because when you embrace blackness, you you embrace your phenotype. When you embrace blackness, you embrace your nose and your hair. You embrace the culture. You embrace the drums. You start seeing connections. And I tell, and one of the things that when I teach about what being Afro-Latino means and I talk about descendancy and how important that is, you know, we, we really have to know our history. And a lot of us are, are, are slow to the history game. And, and, and us, as you mentioned, we're privileged. We're, you know, my father's from there. I'm, my mother and my father are from here. And I'm, I was born here. So I, I'm a... I'm the first in the family to be exposed to the history, and I'm, and that's why maybe I'm more cognizant than maybe Sammy Sosa. So I, right. I appreciate what you said there. It's interesting. How are your students responding? To my students are responding. In a, there's there's some conservatives that want to kill me when they read some of my articles on on black, anti-blackness Dominican issues. Right. Uh, so some of my students, one student came in and straight up wanted to fight me one day. He was an older man. His name was Miguel. He's probably going to hear this and whatever. You know who you are. <laughs> He, um, I, I wrote a, an article about this issue, and I wrote, hey, in every kiss party in the Dominican Republic, we play this song called El Africano. And it says, Mami, que será lo que quiere el negro? Mami, que será lo que quiere el negro? And then he sounds like a monkey at the end. And it's some white girl running for her life because the big black man is coming after her. And sounding like an ape. This is a kid's song. This is a kid's song played at kids' parties. Damn, I dance to that song all the time. Listen to the words to that song. Ooh, 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 at the end. 
What's going on? That's ingrained. We got to get rid of that stuff. We got to mm. get rid of that music. And I think one of the things that my students appreciate is the connection. Mm. And I learned that from Escalante in Stand and Deliver. The con- played by Edward James Olmos, right? When you put the connection, when you are able to explain to your students, and we're able to explain to our families, and we tell them, listen, let's describe the slave experience. Let's talk about how people were enslaved. And they came on shifts. And when they crossed that terrible place and so many died along the way and were beaten and raped. You know, some of us that were taking from the same families from point A were dropped off here. And then that same ship carried some of our family members to the next island. And then some of us stayed on that ship and they carried that to the next island. And some of us made it all the way to Alabama and Louisiana and southwestern portion of the United States. Our families were broken up and all, that diaspora is incredible because our families, we can trace our culture throughout the islands, right. throughout South America, throughout Central America, Mexico, and all over the United States. And I tell them, how do you prove it? Well, the easy way is phenotype. That's the easy way. Yeah. When nothing else fails, just look at how you look. It, right? We share a lot of things. It's, it's That's bullshit. the easy one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And That's, it's bullshit. And it's bullshit. It's bullshit. You know why? Check, the, check bullshit. this out. I took the DNA ancestry test, right? Oh, what happened? Okay. So I, I came out to... Um, uh, you know, I thought I was going to be a bit more West African than, than what came out. Um, I think I was uh, uh, 54% Iberian Peninsula, yeah. the Spanish, yeah. obviously. Um, I was at maybe 23, 24% West African, uh-huh. Ghana, Nigeria area. My sister, light skin, yeah. softer hair, uh-huh. green eyes, uh-huh. uh, came out to have 10 percentage points more West African than yeah. I did. That's fine. Which, which, which means that it's super unreliable to rely no, on No, no, it's features. reliable. No, no, hold up, hold up. So, that's interesting. I've taken both, Ancestry DNA and 23andMe. Okay. It turns out they're 98.5% reliable. What happens is that not all our brothers and sisters that we have from the same mom and dad will have the same DNA trait, ethnic DNA right, trait. Right. I didn't know that either. Oh, no. I didn't know that. So, we're going to have, in our family, you're going to have a brother and sister. One of them may, be, may have more... African DNA or less African right, DNA. Right. And, it, and, and just because you're brother and sister doesn't mean you share the same... Understood. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And I'm not saying that the results themselves were unreliable. I'm just saying that it's unreliable to judge each other. Or phenotype. Or based on phenotype. Yeah, that's the most right, basic right. one. Yeah, I, yeah. That's not the way. But right. I said, if you wanted to, um, if you wanted to, the lowest common denominator, and you wanted to see uh, uh, descendancy from a, from a continent, let's look at some things that are in common. And sure, you could play the, the, the game of phenotype. But then, let's do, let's go a little deeper and tell my students. Let's go a little deeper. I say, let's talk about Let's talk about what happens when, when we take the instruments of the enslavers and we mix them with our cultural traditions. Mm. Let's listen to some of the similarities that happen on these different islands that never met. Our, our slave ancestors were hanging out with their slave ancestors in Cuba and our slave ancestors in Nicaragua and our slave ancestors in the United States. They never hung out. Right, right. But let's listen to the music. So, so similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? The drums. Said, when you hear the drum, and then the Spanish slave master was, because of the Arabic influence, had many more guitars. Okay, we know that, right? We know that the English slave enslaver, he had more brass instruments. We start looking at the... At, at the at the at the what happens when we marry our traditions with the slave masters traditions mm. and we start seeing incredible similarities so we play and i play a little bit of bachata here mm. and i have my students listen to that and then i tell them what's bachata well bachata's bachata's always sad bachata's a sad music even the cool bachata 
It's sad. Corta vena, that's what they call it. Corta yeah. vena, yeah. <laughs> you cut talk, your veins. Yeah, cut your veins. When you hear Romeo, when he has a cool bachata, it's really sad. It's about him cheating on a girl he really loves. It's right. always sad. Right. Bachata's sad. But it's he's just, innocent. He's innocent. Yeah, he's innocent. <laughs> so we hear it. We hear bachata. We hear old bachata, new bachata. Then I'm like, let's, let's, let's hear some more stuff. And we go to reggae. What do you hear? Oh, you hear sadness. You mm-hmm. love sadness. You hear sadness about your life and the condition that you live in. Sadness about the government. Sadness about your woman that you love. Let's go up here a little north to Louisiana. See, what do you hear? And we start hearing the blues. What do you hear in the blues? Mm. Sadness. And I, what, what, do you, what is happening here? We see the same melody coming out in different rhythms, using instruments that belong to different slave masters. Mm-hmm. But the way we play our music and what we're singing about is similar across the diaspora, but what with our own unique style, whose lowest common denominator is that African diaspora. Mm-hmm. And then let's take that into how we pray. I tell my students, have you ever been to a white mass? I used to be an altar boy. I used to go to white masses. I used to, I used to be an altar boy. Me now. too, brother. Boring as hell. Yeah. Right? I know all the songs. I love them. But they were boring. Yeah. I even tell my students, hey, did you guys ever hear of the castrata? And I was like, they would take these young men and take their testicles off so they can have that high-pitched voice. And I tell them when to stop. They couldn't believe. Yeah, this is how they used to sing. Have you ever been to a Dominican mass? You ever walk in there and see people take out the guitar and the drums? You're like, where am I? What's going on here? <laughs> right? Have you ever been to a black Baptist mass? I said, black Baptist service? I said, I went to Grace Baptist Church in Mount Vernon for a funeral one. And it was so lively, so incredible. I felt Jesus so much. I thought Jesus was sitting next to me. I said, said, look at how we pray. We pray similarly when you incorporate uh, Haitian Catholicism and Vodouism, when you incorporate Catholicism and and how we pray in the Dominican Republic, when you look at how Baptists in the United States, when you look at the the enslaver's religion, once we take it, we put our own flavor in and the diaspora proves it. So we can go through the food and we can go through how we how we are. And that it's it's clear as day. Mm, mm. It's clear as day. And then when we talk about the contemporary political experiences, they're also very similar. So mm. the Latino black experience is very similar to the uh, uh, African-American experience with some exceptions. The African-American, and reason, reason, the reason why I made sure early on, because I think somebody will use this against me one day, I wanted to be clear, that it wasn't for dividing, but to just ed- to, to, to call light to it or call right. attention to Educate. it. Educate. The idea is that the African-American experience is very different from the Afro-Latino experience. Right. Yeah, we have our problems, and yeah, we have colorism, but man, the African-American people, they, they didn't get, they didn't abolish slavery until after a civil war, let's say 1865. Right. They didn't get civil rights until it was codified in 68. And even now, we're seeing the, the, the issues of civil rights coming Full circle, we're seeing what's happening and how the dreams of 68 aren't exactly happening right now. When you look at the um, African-American experience, those descendants of the, Af- the of the slave experience in the United States, and you compare it to the Latino, it's very different. Yeah. Because in there, we're in the majority. 90% of us look like us. Yeah. Sure, you have some blacks, but we're... Right. We, are, we're, we're we you also look, see presidents that look like us. Yes. The people's in positions of power. Of right? course, and the wealthy and bankers. When you go to the Bahamas, the elites are black. When you go to Barbados, the elites are black. When you right. go to Jamaica, the elites are black. So that's why I'm very careful when we talk about blackness and we talk about the African-American experience. Yes, yeah. they're black, and right. yes, we are black. But the African-American experience is unique mm-hmm. and should be treated as such. Mm-hmm. And we cannot, in our effort to be black and now recognizing our blackness, uh, usurp an experience that right. isn't ours. And I'm always careful when I see social media. So when anybody ever asks me, do you classify yourself? I've always been Hispanic. Doing so now is politically expedient. I don't want to do that. 
I, I'm very proud of my my black background. I'm very proud of the fact that I'm Afro Latino. But for me to to just jump on a bandwagon yeah. for a little experience without an explanation, I think is is short sighted. Man, you know, listen, I get triggered when I see light skinned Dominicans that you know are, you know, you can tell that that they have black in them, um, and all of a sudden they start to like really. Uh, you know, talk about how their lives are so difficult because they're black women, and I'm like, you're 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 hijacking someone's narrative right now. You're usurping them. Yeah, you're usurping it, and and you're not understanding the the effects of colorism. Mm-mm. You know, the Dominican Republic didn't have the one drop rule. You know, the the one drop of Negro blood. You know, Plessy versus Ferguson changed everything for African Americans yeah. in this country. We didn't have that. Right. You know, and we had a president. You know, who, who you would consider to be an elite. Right in the Dominican Republic, Leonel Fernandez came the first time he came to New York. I read an article um, that he realized he was black when he arrived in New York. A lot of people do. Yeah, I it's, see that often. It's it's sad. Yeah, it's sad. So you know what? Let me ask you this: What do you think our responsibility is as Dominican Americans to the homeland? And when I say the homeland, I'm talking about the Dominican Republic. You know, it's hard for me. I'm I'm, I'm American. I'm American of Dominican descent, and I'm, I'm not too happy with with what I see in the Dominican Republic. It bothers me, and I see that it's reluctant to change by a lot of the opinion makers. Mm-hmm. And the issue is that I, I experience, because I'm in politics and because I'm on Univision and I'm on TV, I get a lot of, um, and I write about these issues, I get a lot of backlash from mm-hmm. the older folk, mm-hmm. um, some high-powered folk. So I'm, I'm feeling as if you have the young people that are excited about um, seeing some change, but I see the older folk being more reluctant, right. um, and um, it bothers me a great deal. Now, see your question as to what is our responsibility. I'm going to be real. Can I be real? This okay, is this is real. what this platform yeah, is about. So listen, man. My students know this. They laugh when I say it. Yo, if if I was a baseball player and I was in the World Baseball Classic, I played with the USA. Straight up, mm. people get mad at me. I'd be the A Rod. I played with the USA. Mm. I said, I'm straight up American. I had opportunities here in the United States that I would never get in the Dominican Republic. Mm. And I'm not going to um, lie about it. So I, I love the fact that my father could come at 18 years old from DR with nothing. And my mom be here as a 17-year-old. And here I come. And I have had opportunities here and privileges here in the United States that I would have never had had he stayed in Santiago. Right, right. Ever, 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 ever had. And that's, that's incredible. And that's because I stand on the shoulders of incredible civil rights leaders. Right. I stand on the shoulders of hardworking Puerto Ricans in the Bronx that made things happen for me because I was the only Dominican kid. And I didn't know I was Dominican until third grade when Obi Ajapan from Ghana said to me, you ain't Puerto Rican. I said, what? I'm Dominican. I'm like, oh, and then I realized, started realizing having some conscience of what was happening because as you, you, you're in Harlem, so it's a little different. I'm from the Bronx, so... It was everything was Puerto Rican. We just right. there. I hope well, I went to high school in the Bronx. Oh, you went to Hayes. Oh, that's right. I got the Hayes T-shirt. So, you know, you know why I'm wearing this, right? Because you <laughs> went to Fred. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's right. right. I'm sorry to hear that, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I love Hayes. Hayes is a great place. Um, so it was a big Puerto Rican place. So I'm, I'm I stand on the shoulders of all these different ethnic groups, all these different racial groups. Right? It's an incredible experience. And I've been to the Dominican Republic mm. several times. Um, I study and I teach it a great deal. I research it a great deal. My loyalties to the United States and, and to the people of the United States, my descendancy is in the Dominican Republic, mm. and um, my father will ultimately retire there. My father, um, super proud Dominican. Um, I'm, I'm, I, can't say, I can't say that my affinity to the Dominican Republic rivals that of someone who just came here, 
uh, because of my affinities to the United States. Right. It's a, it's a weird thing to say because I know some of your listeners will be like, shut the f- up, Polanco, but whatever. But I, str- I strongly feel that my responsibility and my work to change the world is, is, is in New York, is in the United States. But yeah. It's a weird thing, I know. Yeah. You know, I always find it interesting when you have these old old school Dominicans that take progressive stances in here in this country when it comes to like voting for Obama or, you know, believing in in, in certain things that benefit, you know, people of color, but yet are super conservative when it comes to Dominican politics. I see that a lot. Yeah. You know, I think it's a lot of it is self-preservation, but... I agree. Yeah. A lot yeah. of them are like pro-immigration all the way. Yeah, yeah, my tia, yeah, my yeah, brother, yeah. my sister, my brother, my brother, my brother. You have your whole family in the Heights. Right, right, right. Right? But then in the Dominican Republic, just like I'm a Yeah, yeah, yeah. No yeah, more yeah, Haitians. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm done with the Haitians. Get them out. They're all over. Oh, my God. Like you hear it all the time. You're like, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Which one is it? Well, what is it about? And then, you know, when I get the mad, and I do this to myself, I think I get myself into these disagreements. I was like, let, let me ask you a question. If you're so mad about Haitians being in, in the area and you're so mad about the undocumented Haitians. And you and you supported the Haitian the decision to deport two hundred and ten thousand Haitians in two thousand twelve. If you're so excited about that, I tell them. What if Haiti's demographic was different? What is what if they were blue, oh, white, and white and black? Forget about it. Ah, Bring ah, them in. Bring them in. Yeah. So you know, I mean, yeah, you yeah. point that stuff out, they get mad, but it's true. Yeah, yeah. You're gonna tell me they get. And look, and I'm gonna tell this, Donald Trump. If you're listening, ever, would you be so interested in putting up a wall? Would you go on a debate in 2015 for the primary and say that Operation Wetback that Dwight Eisenhower put together was a good idea and that you would do the same if you knew that the people in Mexico were blonde, white, and blue-eyed? Right. That's an, I'm not going to assume. I'm asking. That's yeah, a question for those people. That, right. That's a fair question. If it was the Swedish demographic, would your position on immigration be different? Mm-hmm. So, again, for those of you that are listening, we're talking about Dominicans because I'm Dominican, Charlie, and I teach it, and I'm in the middle of it. Right. But the, the issues of the Dominican people transcend every group of people, from white Americans to black Americans to Dominicans. Everybody has these issues. Right, right. But it's so interesting when they hit home and it's your family, right? Yeah, 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 for sure. So, you know, I talk to people, they're like, GC, you know, at the end of the day, you're pro-America, America, America, America. Yeah. But at the end of the day, those, that's Dominican blood in you. You mm. know, you did grow up eating a haroko mabite and flang and that's right. So it's so it's true. Uh, the the values that were put in my in my in my spirit and in my constitution came from Dominican parents from a conservative Dominican family, and a lot of the my love for my kids and everything else I got from my father who happened to be Dominican. Um, I see that love. For my children, I see the same love and passion for family in other ethnic groups, though. So it's like right. it's not something that's limited because right. you know, so it's not specific is, to the Dominican. <laughs> right. Right. I've seen I've seen every group be so loving. So I right. think a lot of it a lot of it has to do with the fact that at some point we have to just, um, for purposes of political expediency, I think at times we have to say, "Yeah, I'm proud because my father happens to be from an island." No, yeah. I'm proud that I'm a good father and that he's a good father. Yeah, and that he made a great decision in coming to the United States. Yeah, yeah. You know, was your love for history was a driving uh, motivating factor for you to become a teacher? Was I love it? history, yeah. Okay. And was yeah. it that? Was it because of that that you, like, did you start teaching history? I taught, yes, yeah, so I'm a social studies teacher by trade. That's what okay. I, but, I taught during the day and went to law school at night. So I taught history, government, and economics, yeah. Look at that. Look at that, man. It. It's, it's a great field. Mm. It's a great field because, you know, it, everything that you see going on now, you can trace it back to one moment in history. Everything. And then what's great about it is, I'm not good at math, but I use some math in my class because history repeats itself periodically. So the anti-immigrant America first nationalist stuff that we hear, we've heard before 
four times in our era, in, in our history, where it caught a lot of, you know, support. So history repeats itself often, and I see it happening repeatedly. It happens mm. in the Dominican, it happens here. So when you know history, you're like, oh my God, like deja vu, I read, yeah. that. I read that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, you're a teacher, you're also an attorney. Um, are you still practicing? Yeah. Practice. Okay, and how's that going? Um, I, I, my practice is great. You know, I, I'm an attorney. Um, I do a lot of work with the, with the state as well. So mm-hmm. I, my practice is limited to what I can take. But what I do a lot of is real estate, a lot of contract work, mm-hmm. and um, matrimonial work is yeah. very exciting. I'm, I would assume that picked up during the pandemic? Yeah, it picked up. You know, we got... And what's good about these jobs is the, these, this kind of work is that, as you know, a lot of it is out of court. Mm-hmm. So I can I can teach. And because in the middle of the night, I'm drafting summons and complaints. Right, and, right. Filing e-files, so yeah, a lot yeah. of that stuff is done trans- and transactional work is done on the computer. And you're saving also a lot of time due to lack of traveling. Oh yeah, yeah. so uh, online appearances, everything is a little different right now. And I hear that now we're going to be even closed further. So it's it's interesting. You know, you go to law school and you think to yourself, like I said, this I was in a podcast not too long ago. I said, we all go to law school and we see ourselves either either you saw To Kill a Mockingbird or you read it in class or you saw Matlock growing up or. Matlock was my thing growing up. Really? Like that, Tuesday nights, 8 p.m. And then uh, I was raised by, by Co- the Cosby show, and I wanted to be Claire, but the guy version. And uh, <laughs> so Claire raised me. Um, Claire Huxtable. Yeah. So, you know, you see all these things. You see yourself, wow, wow, wow. And then you graduate law school, and you find yourself doing divorces. You're like, wait a minute. And you're like, well, I thought I was going to be on the Supreme Court. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> like, I'm doing right. divorces all day. But, you know, what's funny is that you realize when you're in law school, it's like, you know, there's... The, the, the field of law, as you know, is so diverse. There's so many different types of law that people yeah. practice. Right. And you didn't even think about it as a little kid growing up. And yeah. You find that only like 2% of lawyers do the matlock work, right? right? Only 1% of lawyers does this. Only 12% actually practice in courtrooms. So it's been interesting. The law, law school, I did my law degree in MBA at Fordham at nights so while I taught during the day and then I went to the state. Um, has opened up a lot of doors for me like I planned. Mm. Uh, I, I always wanted to go to law school when I was in third grade I knew I was going to be a lawyer I knew I was going to do it I knew I was going to teach really Yeah. you, you always know, I, had the gift of gab <laughs> I guess was I it know, that I, I don't know I planned everything out not everything went according to plans but right. you had, I had a I, had, I used to box I used to I could, I could even show you some stuff now I used to box out the year how old I was going to be what offices were open to run as a little third grader mm. and it was because of my love for history and politics and my dad's uh, you know uh, indoctrinating me with American history and mm. politics and yeah. being a Reagan baby was like no other man right. you know you so impressionable uh, at that age so I knew where I was so when I was when I was in law school at night everything was coming according to plan it was right. so exciting to see then obviously you know things don't work out as, as you planned right but in the law I encourage anyone who is thinking about going to law school to think about it because not all of us lawyers practice law but that doctorate makes a big difference in your life professionally it opens up doors that a kid from the hood would not have otherwise opened. You could be a kid from somewhere else and have all these doors opened up for you. Guys like Charlie and me would not get those doors open unless we had that paper. Right. It, it, we have to work twice as hard right. to break down some of these doors. I, I noticed. Agree. I agree. I've been in rooms where I thought everybody would have one, and that's not the case. Right, right. If that wasn't an issue, would you, would you have gone to law school even if you didn't know if you wanted to practice law? Yes, yeah. yeah, and I say the same thing to, to anyone who asks me. Absolutely. I think the law school education is, is like no other. It, it just teaches you to navigate within large amounts of information. It makes you more efficient as a thinker. It allows you to look at things from different angles. That translates to life. Oh, my God. 
Oh my God, it's an incredible experience. Yeah. It's hard. Super you know, hard. I tell, I tell um, if... Yeah, like, was it hard? Like, was law school... Law school was hard for me only because I'm very social. And law school demanded that I stayed in the library for more hours than, yeah. what, than what I wanted. It was very hard for me. You know, I did the... I, did I mean, the, but you were doing law school and MBA. Of course yeah, it was hard. it's very hard for me. And I was teaching at a family. <coughs> so I, I, hit, I did the non-traditional route uh, in that I did a lot during the day. Um, but I found it to be incredibly difficult... The material, I went to Fordham, so Fordham wasn't one of the law schools that trained you for the exam. Law school was a very philo philosophical, a lot right. of thinking, a yeah. lot of, you know, to be or not to be stuff, but deep. And a lot of work, a lot of reading, a lot of writing. I wasn't, you know, I found myself overwhelmed so much. And in law school, I found that, <clears throat> you know, I really didn't like the material. I can't lie. But I knew that it was for the best. Right. You ever have like a medicine? Right? Yeah. I'm taking this Civ Pro class, Civil mm -hmm. Procedure class, right? I'm like, I'm so lost. It is such a hard class. You remember Civ Pro? It's yeah. a hard, one of the hardest classes. Our professor, the late Terry Smith, um, I'll never forget this. September 11th was that year, and I'm sitting in class, and everybody knew I was lost. But he used to call students out. He had a seating chart. It was like 300 of us in this lecture hall. Holy smokes. And we were all in the evening division, and he says... Mr. Polanco, would you please... I said, Father, oh, my God. Yeah. John Owens, you're going to hear this. You're sitting next to me. You remember this day vividly. I said, um, Professor Smith, I would like to pass. I'm not prepared. Oh, no. We're going to go through this. And he has me there for a good 15 minutes. Just banging you with the Socratic me, method. I just don't know the answer because right. I just don't know. Right. Why? Because I was just grading midterms for my students. I just had a daughter. I'd be like, ah, blah, blah. Well, I didn't have a daughter yet, but I, said, I had my daughter soon, so I, so I remembered. But... Uh, the next year, but I'm sitting there and I'm just like, oh my God, I'm getting killed. So what happens right before finals? Professor Smith comes back. He'll never forget that. He'll never let me off the hook. He walks in right before finals. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, I was at the New York Sports Club this morning and I was on the treadmill listening to U2's beautiful song, A Beautiful Day. And I said to myself, that's what most of you will be singing to yourselves after the final. And Mr. Polanco, what song will you be singing? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yo, John, you got to email Charlie Vargas and let him know exactly this day. I said, I will survive. And the whole <laughs> class, man. I will survive. Because they knew I hated it, man. It was hard work. Yeah, yeah. I tell anyone, if you're unsure about law school, that's mm -hmm. not for you. That's not for if you. If you're unsure that you're going to practice, then go for it. Because, But if you're unsure of the work, and the and, and then think about getting an MBA. Mm -hmm. Because in an MBA, it's another, another respected degree in the, in the profession. Uh, many corporations look at the MBA like the degree for them, right? right? So if you want to work in business, if you want to go to a hospital, the MBA is the way to go, right? Mm -hmm. Because you study all aspects of business and you get really in there and you have teamwork and team projects. So where did I have more fun and it was more interactive? And the MBA, the School of Business at Fordham was amazing. I got my MBA, it was fun. The, the, the brainiac work, oh my God, I'm going to die, Fordham Law School, mm -hmm. by the way. And I would encourage anyone who wants to challenge themselves and, and get a doctorate and, and um, uh, have doors open that otherwise wouldn't be open to consider law school. And one mm -hmm. of the best things about law school is you don't need to go to a high-end law school. Mm -hmm. you don't need, when I say high-end, I mean expensive. You have incredible law schools. You have SUNY Buffalo. You have the City University of New York. You have Rutgers. You have incredible law schools that don't cost as much as... I, I had to borrow $250,000. Right. It's a lot of money. So you don't have to borrow that kind of money. You can actually go for nothing. Yeah, you know, look, you borrow two hundred and fifty thousand, but that's at the time, right? When you want to add interest rates, mm. 
you know, forget about it. That two fifty turns into three fifty easily. Easily, yeah. But you know, it's, and that's it's worth it because yeah. then uh, the money that you make, you know this, and we got to tell the, the listeners that are thinking about it. The money that you make if you work hard is incredible. Yeah. I've spoken to you about some of the people that you know. They're banging out four or five hundred thousand dollars, and not a lot of them, but they work for it. Right. right? It's hard to make that kind of money doing something else. Right. So I have colleagues of mine that are in my department. They have PhDs and they're some of the smartest people I ever met. But they can't open up an office to talk about poetry. Right. Nobody's gonna come and pay you for that. Yeah. So there's a there's a there's um there is a value that that can pay off uh, for you and your family. Right. And I remember Michael Corleone in The Godfather who didn't want to go to law school. I remember the scene where he, they're told that's your life insurance policy. Right. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So, I agree. So that's one of the issues with this. It's tough. If you don't know you want to practice, but you're thinking about it, do it. But if you're yeah. um, if if you're scared of working hard, don't do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. You mentioned um, you grew up in a conservative household. Um, how did that affect you as a child? Did that eventually inform your political position uh, going forward as a young man and and you know into your adulthood? Oh yes. Yeah. I am who I am because of that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we're all creatures of our experience. Of course. I grew up in a house that was all about individual responsibility, mm-hmm. straight up. Mm-hmm. And I grew up during the crack epidemic. I mean, yeah. I grew up on Creston, 184th Street. Uh, my friends are still with me on Instagram and Facebook. They could be able to smile when they hear this. You know, weekly on our on our on our block were several cardboard murals of kids that we knew that were stabbed and killed. Yeah. And because the streets were so dangerous, my father wouldn't let me out. Mm. So I grew up inside. I grew up. I'm an indoor creation. Mm. And. And I'm angry about that to this day. You see me, I'm 43 years old, and I'm angry. And sometimes when you hear me on TV debating and stuff, I'm angry that my childhood was stolen because there were bad people outside selling drugs, killing people, and robbing people, and robbing my grandmother, and they knew better. And I'm angry. And that, in combination with a father that would tell you about the importance of behaving yourself, individual responsibility, working hard, you know, that affects you in ways that are incredible, man. Right. That, 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 you start, you start putting two and two together. You start seeing around, you start seeing bad people around. You say, you didn't have to do that to my grandmother. You didn't have to do that to my father. You didn't have to jump my mom. You didn't have to burn his car. You didn't have to do, why are you selling drugs to little kids? You're going to get them hooked. Why are you giving drugs for free? That's not okay. You're going to get them hooked on drugs so that you can have flashy stuff. That's a personal response. That's a decision you made. Oh, that his father's not there. Why not? Why isn't his father there? Oh, because of racism. That's what, I used to hear this stuff as a child. So that's ridiculous. Then, I guess, I got older. I used to get even more angry. Because you know what I realized? I used to have, I used to have pets. I used to have a dog in the back. I'm allergic to it. That's why he was in the back. Because my father was a super, so he had a dog in the back. And I had iguanas and lizards. And I would see these animals would take care of their kids. Mm. Then I saw much of the penguins when I got much older. And I was like, yo, penguins take care of their kids. How could you walk out on your kid? There's no reason for you to walk out on your kid. Look, I don't want to hear about you walked out on your kid because of the system. No, you have no right to leave your child behind and then use that as the reason why my grandmother got jumped by that kid. But what about that kid that didn't have your father? No, no, that's my point. I, I, I agree. Uh, my, my question is, why did that father, he yeah. made a, he should have been, now what happens? The question then becomes, 
the father wasn't there. Many reasons. He left the family. He didn't like mom. Bah, 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 bah. And now that I do divorces, I see it in the courts when people just don't pay child support. Mm-hmm. They disappear on the mom. Yeah. The same thing happening all over again. I see a lot of kids. And guess what? Those kids end up in foster care. Those kids end up in the streets. Okay, and you see them when they become your clients. Yeah. Yo, so I get mad. And when I was growing up in the crack epidemic, I saw a lot of people around me suffer incredibly because of these crack dealers, because of these gangs and what they were doing to people. And I saw that there were people in politics that would try to reason, explain why that happened. Not, not, not excuse. This is what I hear. We're not excusing. We're explaining. Right. So that impacted me a great deal. It did, Charlie. Um, it did. It impacted me so much that I started viewing politics from a different perspective. And although when I registered to vote as a young man in the Bronx, everybody's a Democrat. You don't need that. You want to vote in the elections. The elections are decided in primaries. I, I became a Democrat, and I, and I was a Democrat, but I was a moderate Democrat as an 18-year-old, right? I go to college, I, the College Democrats of America. I'm a Democrat because everybody's a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Why? And the reason we're Democrats is because the Republican Party wanted to cut things that we needed. I grew up on food stamps. You cut the food stamps, we in trouble. We don't eat, right? You want to talk about cutting this and cutting that. When you cut the services that my people need, Right? So the Republican Party wasn't speaking to the needs of the people that I grew up with and that were around us. So right. you had a situation when you had moderate Democrats like Bill Clinton and Al Gore and, and um, those of the Democratic Leadership Council that were talking the stuff that I was really interested in. Right, and um, But at the same time, and this is where I want your viewers and your listeners to hear me out, I saw Rudy Giuliani come onto the scene. Now I'm 16 and 17. Rudy comes in. Yo, we had... One year, three thousand murders, rapes, and and um, and and and, burg- and robberies. Yo, that number now is hovering around three hundred. When Rudy left, it plummeted. I mean, Rudy, Rudy did things to the city that now, in retrospect, we can have debates. We see the racism that was behind the things that now, as I speak to other people about what their experiences were, they were not mine, but what I saw. I remember, we're a product of our experiences. What I saw is that those cardboard boxes, Charlie. They weren't there anymore. The killings and the stabbings, that wasn't happening anymore. Now I could ride my bike outside a few times as opposed to never going outside. Now the bad dudes were scared to come outside. Now none of that was happening anymore. And you see Rudy Giuliani leading a new style of policing that took interest into what happens to the good people that don't do those things, that were scared to go outside. Now we're not scared anymore. And what he did to the city is he changed the culture in the city so that so that it was safer to go outside. Now people that left for their, ran for their lives and left behind because of either white flight or panicking, now they're, they're dying to come back to the city because of what happened during that administration. And, and I know that a lot of my black and Latinos fight me on it, but that's my experience. Right. My experience is different. I was not allowed to go outside, right? So I didn't get stopped in first. I didn't, I didn't have that experience. So I got to go outside finally. And, and I saw the policies that did, and those policies were coming out of liberal Republicans. So what I saw was that you could be pro-gay rights, pro-immigration, you could be a pro-women's rights, and you could believe in law and order, you could believe in a strong police, you could believe in, 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 in all these... I said, that's interesting. When I started teaching in the schools, I was still a Democrat, but then something happened. I saw students failing, and I remember the system said, you cannot give them less than a 55 I said, wait a minute, what do you mean? This student failed. He failed with a 15. He failed with a 30. You got them a 55. Then I said, this isn't okay. Parent-teacher night. 
I had 150 students a semester. Three parents would show up, and all three were immigrant parents from Africa. I said, where's everybody that needs to come see me? Nobody's showing up. The personal responsibility, that issue of coming to see your teacher, come, that wasn't happening. So then I started seeing how one group of people were pushing for vouchers and for charter schools and new ways to challenge this system so that kids, so that kids that were from where I went to, what we're from, can go to better schools. I said, yo, and I heard George Bush talking about no child left behind. Man, I got excited. I said, what? No child left behind? I'm with you, brother. And you like immigrants? I'm with you, brother. So I became a Republican. I said, I'm going to make, make a difference. The line of Democrats is from here to Pluto. They look like me. The line of Republicans that look like me is from here to down the, maybe across the street. I said, I could come here and make a big difference and change none of my belief systems. Be pro-minority. Be pro-immigration. Be pro this and believe in education reform. Be, believe in criminal justice issues to, to, to make sure that we care about people that are being victimized. To be against drug dealers and all that stuff and still care about my people. I could do that. And I saw the Republican Party was more apt to it. So I became a Republican at a different time. When, when, when George Bush ends up getting 44% of the Latino vote, where he's talking about issues that we talk about all the time, about the soft bigotry of low expectations that, that, that the system has against minorities. You know what that sounds like to me? Like flan. It sounds like flan with extra caramel sauce. Mm. So that's interesting that your, your parents pretty much just made sure that you weren't going outside and you weren't interacting much with, with the other folks in the community you know, the folks that were unfortunately doing these negative things that you talk about, right? Um, but, you know, personal responsibility, would you agree that that's something that is taught in the house? Of course. Okay. So would you agree that, you know, when, if a person commits a crime, that they may not necessarily just be a bad person, they could just be someone that uh, was trying to adapt to their circumstances, to their environment, and they didn't know any better? That's a good question. It's a deep question. Bad person is a, is a. It's an absolute statement. It's an absolute statement. As, as right, if like we're, person. as if like you know we're this bottle. You know, like this bottle was created to be a bottle. Right. Right. But you know we're ever changing. We're right. you know. But bad person, you mentioned. I'll tell you what. If you. Bad hombres, yeah. <laughs> like Trump likes to if, say. If 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 you. And and this is where, I would be so angry when I hear. People, and, and, and again, this is a political statement, when people would attack either Biden or Hillary and then have them from, from within the Democratic Party for the 94 crime bill that was supported by a lot of people that looked like us. Yeah. A lot of people from those communities. They were. got to remember that. So they were. When, when you take a drug and you give it to an adolescent and you say, use this for purposes of making money and making sure that they're hooked so that they keep your steady demand, you're a bad person. You're a bad person, bro. And the word that they used that got everybody crazy was super predator. Super predator. And I'm asking myself, if I take drugs and I give them to an adolescent, that fuck? What? What, you want me to sugarcoat that? No way am I sugarcoat. You're a terrible human being. You're poisoning that child. These kids in Staten Island giving out pills at parties? Knowing that you're going to hook people up with pills today in 2020, you are a bad person. You know that that drug could kill them. You know that if they take that pill, it could kill them. You're going to give them at a pill party? You're going to hook them up? You're going to hook them on that drug? You are a bad person, man. You know better than to do that. And yes, you're right. Personal responsibility is taught. Personal responsibility is, this is what you do, this is what you don't do. But there's some things that are inherently known to be bad. Giving poison to people. 
So you can hook them on drugs is bad. So what do you do with a person that gives uh, drugs to a person, uh, to an adolescent? Like, what do you think is the best approach to deal with that? There's several things. I think that... Because Giuliani several... put them in jail and destroyed families. Several... First and mass incarceration rose as a result of that, that... destroying communities of color. But mass incarceration is an interesting issue. Because I believe very strongly that we need to have a holistic approach. That's what I'm saying. But like no, when no, you, but we need to have. That's my, my 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 point is, you know, now at 43, now that I'm no longer the 16 to 18 year old and seeing those things, there there should have been at the time a holistic approach. There there wasn't a holistic. There wasn't. Um, and there, there was, was a sweep it under the rug approach. There was a, an approach of the time, and a lot of the writings that have come since have been academic writings in retrospect as to the effects of what has happened since then. We study what happened since then and what should have happened instead or alongside. And I agree. We should have um, thought about serious rehabilitation reforms. Not that there weren't any, because if anybody comes here, Charlie, and tells you that there weren't programs that help people with GEDs and college degrees and all this stuff, they're lying. We should have made more emphasis on mental health. We should have done a lot of work. There should have been a lot, a lot more work. It wasn't perfect. So I think it should have been a more holistic approach because you would have had better people on the back end coming right. out. It would have reduced recidivism in our communities. Um, but the mass incarceration issue that happened from the 94 bill, we have to remember that this was something that was an emergency situation. This was real. There were some issues with the, with the 94 crime bill and sentencing guidelines that we need to address as straight-up racist. For example, the crack and cocaine sentencing disparity is racist. Sure, they'll say it's because of the fact, you know, that the issue was impacting more people in one area, whatever. If you can make tons of little crack vials from the same amount of cocaine that you're getting caught with and you go to jail for less time, we can prove that that was a racist sentencing guidelines agenda. And I admit that. Uh, but there, we, we have to remember that uh, the the crimes were happening in our community by us, against us, right? And that is something that I will not forgive those crack dealers ever. So, and I know this is hard for people that look like me to say, but it's just a fact. The crime of selling that poison to our people was happening, people that look like us, by us, to us. So the people that are going to be arrested in large numbers are going to be the people peddling those drugs to us. Right. So the mass incarceration is a result of people violating the laws of selling that poison to our kids that later created dropouts in great numbers. Kids that didn't have fathers themselves. They became absentee fathers. Drugs ruined entire families for decades and generations. So that guy that people want to defend now, why are you calling them super predators? I'm like, you know what? What do you want to call them? What do you want to what do you want to call a man who gives poison to a child to get him home? What do you want to call a man who brings a child and encourages him to be part of a drug deal operation where they're going to peddle poison? What do you call them? What are we sugarcoating this? Let's, let's admit that we should have done mental health therapy and real mental health work so that we don't have the recidivism that we saw, some at 90%. But, but come on, Charlie. Yeah. There, there's no way we're going to sugarcoat the fact that it was us doing this to us. I understand. I understand that. But just to push back a little bit, you know, you talk about you admit that there was a failure of the government to provide these these resources. And also, historically, I don't know if you would agree, but under Republican administrations, these programs that can help these communities get out of drug addiction, 
um, give them these holistic options to like find better work or, uh, you know, social programs that, that, that would help with education or, uh, you know, providing at least some level of comfort um, so that the kids didn't have to worry about where their next meal was coming from and they can actually focus in, in school. It's kind of like we're allowing our own Americans and many of them not Americans, but, but we're allowing our communities to go through that. And then when they fail because the resources aren't there and because we created an infrastructure that didn't favor their progression, we turn around and then shame them for it, for their decisions. You know, the, the government also contributed to this. You know, I don't think the government or politicians, especially privileged politicians that um, may not have come from those communities and may not understand the intricacies as to why someone can get addicted to drugs, as to why someone doesn't have the 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 mental capacity to deal with stress the way someone else does who's in a stable environment, right? Like, I think it's just a bit more layered than just saying, okay, we need to put them away. And I think the government failed them, especially around the Reagan area. I know a lot of Republicans love to hail Ronald Reagan, but when when the economy, when, you know, Reagan economics was was a thing, you know, these, you know, he was cutting social programs left and right. There was no money in the hood. You know, and many folks, you know, and I know this may be difficult to digest, but many folks didn't have any other options. And the only options that they knew was to sell drugs. And I know it seems like a cop out, but you're talking to someone that out of rebellion, I would step outside to the street and hang out with these kids um, in my neighborhood. Right. And, you know, my mother, um, I didn't have a, a father in the household like you did. And that's probably uh, one of the reasons why I was able to force my way out of the apartment. And, you know, my father passed away when I was six. I'm sorry, man. Yeah. It's, you know, it was a long time ago. <laughs> but I was allowed, I was exposed to these other kids that were my peers, that were, um, that were young, that were smart, that were witty, mm-hmm. um, that had charisma, had sense of humor, right? And, and you know, but they didn't have uh, the access to the private education that I got, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, all of a sudden you start to see their futures fade away. And, and, you know, and I was talking about going to college and they were trying to figure it out. They were having existential crises at the age of 17, 18, not knowing what to do with themselves. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, God forbid you get someone pregnant and the pressures just start mounting on mm-hmm. them. And, and that stress can lead people to do things that they wouldn't, th- that they would not normally do. So I guess I have, this perspective that um, that the only reason I came out of that situation was because of the resources that were given to me, and that was not due to my merit. That was due to the circumstances that I was raised in. You know, my father passed away, and I've mentioned this before in prior podcasts, my father passed away due to lung cancer, right? Uh, my mother lawyered up because my father got sick um, when he was working for a construction company. When he was in the DR, he was an executive. Um, he was doing really well in DR, but, you know, things were getting tough in DR. He decided to move out here. He was always a strong worker, and he wanted to work. He wanted to provide for his family. Um, at the age of 50-something, he, you know, it was difficult for him to learn, grasp the English language, and and obtain a job title as, as a job title that he had in the Dominican Republic, so he got into construction. What happened around that time, his employers... Uh, were negligent and would, and would send them into these sites that were infested with asbestos, right? So he got sick. My mother lawyered up. My, after my father died, 
it became a wrongful death claim. You know, there was there was some money that was given to my mother. Um, and, you know, thankfully, instead of buying Chanel bags or or, or doing some, something else with the money, just, you know, just wasting it, she decided to invest in my education. Individual responsibility. Individual responsibility. Uh -huh. But you know why? Why my mom felt that that was necessary was because she, when she was young, had a godfather who uh, came from a wealthy background who actually sponsored her education and, and she got to see firsthand the benefits of getting a quality education, right? Her siblings didn't have that. It was because she had that godfather that had exposed her right. to that world, right? So if she didn't have that experience, she probably would have decided otherwise when it came to my education. Well, let's thank God she did. Right. But again, I was never the smartest. I was never the quickest. But you, know? you were hardworking. Neither was I. Neither was a lot of the guys that I know that's made it. But it's a lot easier to be hardworking when you're around other people that are saying, you know what? You can achieve this. You can become an attorney. Because let me let me tell you something. Charlotte, I'm totally listening to you, bro. But the people that we talk about, that I taught, that did the things that we talk about, they were smart as hell, man. Some of those drug dealer students that I had in my class, smart, spoke well, read well, wrote incredibly well. These kids had talent. They had talent. They had marketing talent. The drug dealers that were ruining neighborhoods, those weren't dumb people. They were people with incredible potential that somewhere decided because they didn't take the right, the right approach to do bad things. And I mean it, man. Yeah. I, think that, I think that a lot of us who we work harder than most, I was not the smartest kid in any of my classes ever, but you work hard. And I think that we have that drive, all of us. And if we as a culture, if we as a culture really gave no room for that kind of thought to flourish, right? If we decided today, everybody's going to go to college, we ain't impressed, right? Like some cultures that I know, that I work with, right? So you go to college, big deal. Mm -hmm. If we make that... What do you mean you're not going to become a doctor? Well, what do you mean? Yeah. Right? If we, instead of culturally embracing shortcomings and excusing them because of experience, if we make it like we're going to work hard no matter what, the same spirit I see with Haitians back in Haiti, the Dominicans back in the Dominican Republic that make it, because not everybody's going to make it, right? We know that. Not, not everyone's going to. But if we, if we adopt a cultural approach that says, nah, that's not okay, bro. It's not okay for you yeah. to leave your kids. It's yeah. not okay. Right now, what I see, Charlie, in our communities is an understanding. You know, you know, I don't know where he is. Uh, you know, I don't want nothing from him. And I see that as being culturally accepted in many parts. And I don't think that's okay. I think if we, uh, if we no longer give room for the idea that sometimes you got to sell drugs to pay the rent and put five carrots in your baby girl's ear, then... Biggie Smalls. I you got to quote him. <laughs> I think that we would be in a better place. I do. And I think that's what my father brought out of me. There's no excuses here. Yeah. No excuses. You, I make $12,000 a year. We're on welfare, big deal. You're going to make it. We're going to work hard. We're going to make it. You're not, so that guy out there that's like, you know what? What should I do? Go to school or should I peddle these drugs to these poor people? Well, you know what? You're a bad person. You know better. You shouldn't do that to your own people. And if we give them no quarter, if we give that life no quarter, right? Then I think things would change. But what do we do? Our politicians give them quarters. Our teachers give them quarters. Everyone around us. Movies give them quarters. Music give them quarters. Music elevates these people. Music, see, I just had a podcast, uh, so interesting, it was a great podcast. Wow, man. We, we were talking about music, and the music that those kids were playing outside was rap. And my father said, esa música no se oye aquí, we don't hear that music here. I grew up until college, 
disliking rap because rap was for those dudes outside. And listen to what they're listening to, Basura. Then I go to college and I listen to Tupac, and I'm getting all my sociology and political science classes from this genius. Right. Right? And then I'm exposed to Pac, and I realize, oh, my God. And then I listen to Nas, and I'm listening to stories of the kids that were outside, and I'm like, oh, wow. So that's what was going on. So I'm thinking, and my, my best friend at the time, Ruben, put me on. I was not, I, I would listen to Pac, and I would listen to him religiously, listen to the story, listen to how he was putting things together. And not glorifying it, but explaining what was going on. Not excusing it, but telling a story about what was happening. And then rap became the music of the bad people. There's still a lot of bad people playing that stuff and writing that stuff. And we know that if, you, if you're singing about drugs and killing people and raping, and you're a bastard, poor, you're a terrible human. But if you're writing about experiences that you saw, like I saw it, like I heard in Tupac, it brings, it brings things to light that you wouldn't have otherwise thought about. And one of the things I learned from Tupac was that the people that were out there, many of them had dreams and aspirations. Many of them were brilliant. Many of them are just caught in a situation where they don't know how to get out of. But if you listen to Nas and you listen to Tupac, all of them are aspirational. Every one of them is political. Every one of them. Every, you know when we talk about music? Everyone, when you sit there and you listen to Nas, whether it's I Can, right? When you, when, you, when you study and listen to him, each one of them is aspirational about how the government can be, what we saw, how things should change. Brenda's Got a Baby is a great song about you know, what women deal with when they're having children the family can't know or, chi- or, or dad leaves or, or a cousin rapes you and gets you pregnant. All of these things are happening. And what that woman is going through and what she's experiencing, it brings to life the thing that I didn't get to see because I was inside. So then, instead of using that as an excuse, I use that as almost like a Toussaint Louverture uh, speech to get people riled up. Let's go. We can't sit here and continue this bullshit. And that's what I see in some of the music that inspired me in college. And it's interesting how you... Some people take it and create an excuse Bible. And I see that as, nah, you don't listen. This is what he's talking about, how government, and he was so political, talking about the presidential elections, whether it's Bill Clinton, and, and he would get go in, and he would have fights in government as his First Amendment rights to say these things. And I, he may not say, not 100% of the things weren't good, but a lot of it was. Right? right, right. So, yeah, I guess I'm just pushing back on the way you describe bad persons, mm-hmm. right? I think, I think for me, I would, I would describe that as misguided. Misguided persons, because bad person is like you're labeling them um, a specific thing as if like they're unable to change based on information, based on just growing up out of crime. A lot of folks grow up out of crime. You know, a lot of young, you know, when 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 you want to look at the people that are incarcerated, many of them are incarcerated for crimes that they committed in their later teenage years to like their mid 20s. You know, crime tends to go down among the demographics of, of, of folks that are in the ages of 30 and, and up. So, you know, I think that speaks a lot to their environment, not to the fact that they're bad people, but it speaks to their misguided notion of what it meant to be a man, what it meant to be successful, what it meant to be, um, you know, just someone who, uh, you know, is navigating you know, this world as a, as a black or brown man, you know? And, and you know, I, I think, again, hip-hop is beautiful in that it's filled with a lot of contradictions because as humans, we are all 
You know, I feel like we, we are all contradictions. Tupac was a contradiction. He was a walking contradiction. The president who claims he's everything that he, he did was out of his hard work was also given a lot of money from his father to, to start. He grew up, he, he already had an advantage from the beginning. Yeah. Um, and that goes against his whole uh, meritocratic argument that everything that he's earned, he, he's worked for, it's right? bullshit. Right, it's bullshit, right? So... You know, that's it. I think I think this is where we, we differ in that I don't necessarily feel comfortable labeling them as as as, as bad persons. Uh, just, uh, you know, folks that were probably given bad nutrients um, and, and we're seeing the effects of that. And but I do think that um, for the most part, most people are capable of change. I agree. And by me calling them a bad person, um, I'm not encouraging that change. I understand that point. I can see that totally. Yeah. I think bad people can change. I mean, you see that they can. I see that. Can you be a, a person that made a bad decision? Um, sure, you could be a, a person that makes a bad decision. I just view the guy who jumped my grandmother to be a bad person. Mm. I think he knew better before he jumped on an 80-year-old. And that happens, man. I did a grand jury. I was a foreman on a grand jury. And I got to tell you, I saw videos of some bad things done by bad people. <laughs> Straight up bad. They, you know, we're not talking about, you know, a, a lot, a lot of um, these, 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 these people in politics that that give room to that idea that um, these are not bad people. I'm not saying that you do this. I'm talking about in politics, right? They, they, they have this this romantic view of the of the person that I'm calling a bad person. This idea that they were hungry and. You know, they stole some bread because they wanted to feed their kids. No, that dude jumped a, a mom. That dude jumped but, a grandma. And what about the grandma? What about her? It seems like these politicians spend so much time talking about the guy who assaulted. And, and like the, the grandma, not the victim. bruised up, is like, what about her mental health? What about, what about the people that are victimized by these people? You know, in, in 2017, or 2018 numbers, numbers in New York City were astonishing to me as a Latino. It was 96% of all violent crimes were committed by people that looked like you and me, Charlie, against 94% of all the victims of those crimes looked like you and me, Charlie. That bothers me, bro. That bothers me to no end. I mean, the person who did that to that woman is a bad... I, I, I despise that person. And in politics, there's... Unfortunately, no, I gotta be honest, Trump has ruined my experience and... In, in, um, and yeah, I wanted to ask you, like, what, what was... Because what I'm talking about is a whole different... You know, this is not a Democrat or Republican issue. This is about caring about people who get affected by crime, but... Because of my party and where I'm registered, New York City sees me when I'm, when I'm in politics as oh, this, this or Hispanic Republican guy. And Trump, unfortunately, with his demeanor and his, right. the things he said and how he carried himself and the people he brought into the party and the way they speak about us, man, it's just really, it's been, it's been so depressing, Charlie, man. Has and it made you rethink no, it's your party, been, your party affiliation? Well, you know, a lot of my t 20 years worth of networking and my, my, the work that I do and uh, where there's my television work and, and my, my, the, the work that I do politically and with the state, you know, I've been given room to be that guy who is pro-dreamer. I've been given room to be that, that black sheep, right? I've been given room to be the guy who wrote op-eds about Trump being awful. I, I've been the guy who wrote an article that said, Trump's not my nominee when, back in 2016. I was like, this is not happening. And, and I described why, and I hope that I hope that those in the party that supported Donald Trump, the 90%, there's only 10% of us that, that were feeling the way I was, I hope they understand how, how 
he was an affront to our humanity. How when I wrote the article, if your 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 listeners want to take a look, it's called Trump not my nominee, in his insidious state. And I talked about how how two decades of my work at the time it was fifteen years of my work in this party, of bringing Latinos in and saying you mm. can be me in yeah. here. Yeah. How he just shitted on everything, yeah. man. Yeah. When he went down those escalators and said that about Mexicans, man. When he. When he said that, uh, man. When, when he you started throwing toilet papers at Puerto Ricans, man, that's that's when he was president. What I'm talking about when he was just campaigning. When he, right, man. I just sat there and I said, did he just want to ban Muslims from the country? How can I possibly ever talk to another Muslim about the party? How? When when he says, what do you have to lose to blacks and speaks? I'm like, dude, what happened? This is not us. This is not us. And I'm there stuck. I'm like, this has been, do. This guy just became a Republican. I said to myself, he just became a... This whole time he's been a Democrat, he just became a Republican. Yeah, but... but what do but, I do? But he, he just became a Republican, but he was spewing the rhetoric of the Republican Party in that he was, again, condemning uh, harshly people that were committing crimes or even groups that were... that could have been associated to, you know, high crime areas. For example, with the Central Park Five. He took out an ad, uh, you know, declaring... That uh, you know they should get the death penalty. So that you know. So again, so in that uh, that was also an example of like a blanket statement. Like these people are fucking criminals. These people are savages. Like I'm yes, and you know what? But the thing is that people from the community, such as us, you know, uh, well, not not me, but the people in the community at that time, uh, many black and brown folks um, also wanted those young teenagers to go to jail. They were they were convinced that they had something to do with it. Of course, everybody right. was, Chuck. Right, but but there, that was happening because there was a lack of, of this holistic approach in understanding how the situation happens, how the system contributes to uh, false convictions, false arrests. It was because so much was going on, and when you're, you know, so much crime was happening, and when you're in, you know, in emergency situations, you're like, you know, I just want to get rid of it. You know, so your thinking goes out the window and you just want action. And, and that's why I feel that, you know, action reacting first, shooting first, instead of like understanding what the situation is not always, you know, for me, I would say the majority of times is not the best response to something like that. You know, you, you know, so you have to, you know, question your racial biases, your socioeconomic biases, because, you know, some of us can also be elitists. Um, but Chad, how do you do with this? The numbers that I gave you earlier, that's a, those are real numbers. You, you, your listeners could check them out. 96% of us in New York City, the, the violent crimes committed in New York City, 96% of the time look like us, you and me. And 94% were the victims who look like you and me. That's an issue. That's a real issue. And I understand the holistic approach. I'm down with it. I am. You know, I, I, I totally am down. So if anybody's listening and part with it, I do understand. I understand recidivism. I understand that things were done before and they should be done differently now. I understand 100%. I'm that guy. So, but how do we change that? We change that by not giving quarters to reasons and excuses. I think that's important. I think that if we demand more, there's a soft bigotry of low expectations. And I'm going back to President George W. Bush on this. There's a soft bigotry of low expectations in our communities. And that's where the, the low expectations of not expecting more because of A, B, C to Z. I, I agree. I and agree. I think that if we holistically, together, as a whole, we say, yeah, enough is enough, right? Mm -hmm. We're now, we understand. We understand the following. We understand that a lot of us immigrated from countries with no money, and we're here with no money. We understand that we need government support. We understand that. 
And sometimes the government wasn't there. Sometimes it was. And a lot of us took advantage of the fact that the government was there. Some of us didn't, okay. We understand that parents and dads haven't left. We, under we understand all these things, right? We Yes. And I completely understand the situation. I got you. But now, at some point, we got to say, yeah. Mm -hmm. We know better now. We know better. We know that if you go to prison, we got to provide you with resources so that we can rehabilitate you so that when you come out, you don't go back in. We got it. Let's do that. Let's work on that. Let's give no let's give no no more excuses as to why we didn't do it. Let's do it, right? Fine. But within our own communities, our leaders have to stop excusing some of these things. When you have a congresswoman like AOC who's so popular in our community, when you have her saying that the pandemic has created an environment where a lot of young black and Latinos are hungry and they're stealing bread to make it, you know, that is not only irresponsible, but that's not factual. Bread thefts and food thefts are not going up. There's no theft. I mean, there's the, the crimes that are going up are the same crimes that have always happened. So we have, we have irresponsible politicians, I think, who are coddling um, some of this behavior by putting policies on that are short-sighted. And, and it's true. And I think that we should collectively expect more from our people. I think if we expected more from our people collectively, your neighbor, your, that, that, that takes a whole cultural awareness. That's the stuff that we talked a little bit earlier about the civil rights movement here, and it hasn't happened in DR, but it happened here. That was a cultural awareness of we deserve better, we deserve equality. That happened collectively, and it happened, um, it happened almost universally uh, within that group of people. I think it should happen incredibly the same way in our inner cities, in 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 parts of the, in poor parts of our city. Excuse me, not inner city. Um, and I think if we did that, I think we'd be better off. It won't happen overnight, but I think we'd think twice before giving room for that that low expectation that we have right now. Mm in raising higher expectations do you think right now that the current republican administration not not with trump but like even in new york like the republican party in new york do you think they're doing enough to change the narrative in including um groups that were historically excluded uh people that that look like you um you know whether they were excluded based on you know representation people that didn't look like you we're running the party, uh, cutting back on social programs. Do you think the Republican Party are changing the narrative as to say, you know what, let's do it different. Let's try to attract more black and brown folks into the party by really listening to the demands of the community. That's a good question. I think it's been incredibly difficult the last five years to have that discussion. The party today is more nationalistic. It's more focused on other things. One of the reasons I find it to be incredibly difficult, there was a time when that was the case. Mm. There was a time when we saw that happening um, a great deal, and that's not happening anymore. Uh, it's not happening the way it should, and and um, it hopefully it'll it'll happen again. Hopefully there will be some changes happening in the future, um, and I think that you have some. You have some pockets of the of the party that understand that the future is in the demographics. And that uh, the Latino vote is very important and are, are working to get that vote. We saw this election, even with a guy like Trump, um, he pulled in uh, well over a third of the Republican vote this time around. I think that you have a lot of people that agree with some of his policies. And I, I just to answer your question, I just don't know, man. I think that the last five years have been so difficult right. and they have changed the focus no longer we focused on bringing in new people. We're focused more inwards. And the new people that are coming into the party really don't care about things like diversity as much. Right. You have people that do. You have people in the party like Mark Molinaro, who ran for governor last time, who really cares about these things. He even has a slogan called Think Differently. 
and he tries, but you know the the large uh, there's a large contingency of the party that doesn't, and I'm in the minority right now when it comes to these things. The party's very much against any sort of undocumented immigration services for undocumented immigrants. Right. The party, many in the party were okay with the Muslim ban. Many in the party excused some of that behavior, um, and and they and you know. I think I think it was the wrong move because it's going to cost us politically in the long run. Right. A lot of people that think like me have already left, because what happens is that when you're I'm a centrist, uh, and I put that in my Twitter everywhere. I'm a centrist, more than anything. So, you have a lot of centrists that are Democrats, straight up. Yeah, they move like guys like Joe Manchin in West Virginia. He's a centrist. He's a Democrat that runs in a Republican state and wins. And uh, you have guys that do that, and they've left. They've become independents or Democrats, but. It's been, it's been very hard. So the last five years for me personally have been very hard professionally. You know, I ran for public advocate in 2017. I was the first Dominican to run, Dominican-American to run citywide in New York City, which is mm. a big deal. Um, under the Republican under Party. Under the Republican ticket. Right? right. But you know me, I'm hard-headed. I don't change my position on things. I believe what I believe. I believe in dreamers. I said that. I believe in women's rights. I said that. I believe in the LGBTQ community, and I didn't support the president. I didn't. Well, that got out. And so, I, so you didn't vote for the president? I didn't, no. Okay. No, no. No, okay. no, no. Okay. No, 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 never, never, never. never, never. He, he was an affront to my humanity. I just couldn't. Um, mm. I couldn't do it. And what I, you know, when word gets out, it's, you know, I've said, I was clear about it in, in before, and when word gets out now, who knows where I'll be after this goes out, but I didn't. Um, I would never. I brought my daughter there to witness it, so she, she could take a stand. Right. So, so my thing is, it's I, difficult. I, I, but I think it's difficult even before Trump because historically, under Republican administrations, the income inequality gap has widened. Well, that's not necessarily the case. I understand that the 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 belief among many folk, where I'm from, where we're from, is that you know the Republicans come in and cut social programs. That's not that's not the case. But also, no, but tax breaks to corporations, well, the tax, tax policies that actually benefit you know the the top. 10%, 20%? There's an idea. Well, this last tax cut that passed, uh, the Trump tax cuts, as they're called, were widely seen as irresponsible uh, when it happened and even after the fact. Right. Um, widely. Uh, because of the fact that it didn't offer enough support for the lower income and the middle class people. And in New York, it got rid of the salt deductions, which impacted homeowners in, in all over the state. Right. Well, yeah, um, sure did. It, it did. What, what, what is interesting, though, is that there's a belief that... When you cut taxes and you don't raise taxes, the belief is that companies will have more money to hire and that if we cut taxes on those that buy, they'll have more accessible money to buy. And if they have more money to buy, the companies will have more money to hire. In theory, that works. In theory, it works because some of the questions that when I, when I just, to, just to push back a little, imagine that you ran a corporation and you had to pay X amount of money. And then someone says to you, we'll charge you less taxes so that you have more money so that you can hire more people and we can reduce unemployment. Well, that happens. The unemployment plummeted in the African-American and Latino community because of the tax cut. Tax cuts didn't impact us personally as much as it did the, the big corporations and the wealthy owners, but unemployment did plummet. And so so the, the issue of taxes is one that I think your listeners should really think about. Because the more accessible money you have, the more money you have to send your kid to a, a, a school if you wanted to put them in a parochial or a private school, the more money you will have to buy things for your family, the more money you can have to put away for your family. So the idea is that tax cuts work, responsible tax cuts work. And it seems that this time around, 
because of the immense corporate tax cut, didn't reach the, the middle class, it wasn't as successful. Right. But the idea of, of holding the line on taxes is something that is important for, for, for families. Because you as a homeowner know full well that you need more money. And if the government says, we shouldn't waste money on X, let's give you back that money so we can improve the economy, then that's, that's not sinister. That's not some sinister plot. That, that is seen as an economic opportunity for Charlie to spend that money. Right. But I think it's really easy to say, okay, a, person's on a, a person is employed because of these opportunities now uh, presented to corporations to hire folks um, to then equate that to say that they can raise, and, you know, they can make enough money to actually support their families. You know, I think, I think uh, even, even when jobs are out, it, it's not saying that folks that, that look like you and me aren't underemployed, are not able to sustain themselves uh, because of these jobs. And, you know, reality is over the years, income equality has gone up. CEOs are making 20 times, 30 times more than a CEO was making in 1954, 1955, uh, you know, the times where America wants to go back to, the times where, you know, some, you know, Republicans claim that America was great, but the tax, you know, the, the taxes that were getting paid by the wealthiest in the country were a lot higher. So we want to go back to America that was great. The, the income inequality wasn't as wide, but the taxes were higher we're on the wealthy. You're, you're right. There were taxes on, on those that were wealthy. The marginal tax rate was higher for the, for the wealthier Americans. Like 50 to 60 percent. Yes. At that, at that moment, you're right. It was post-World War II, post-Korean War. It was a different time. And you're right. We were a smaller country, and our budget was smaller, and the amount of money we were spending on services and uh, public assistance was less. So that's when people say, you know, let's go back to those times, even on the Republican side, you're out of your mind. This is a whole different place. We're much more heterogeneous today than then um, in many ways. And there's a lot more money that has to be spent to take care of Americans today than was then. So we can't, that comparison can't be made. We can't, now what we can talk about is how do we reduce income inequality? There are a lot of things that we can do, but we cannot reduce income inequality by just thinking about taking money away from people that we think are wealthy. You know what happens when we do that? People that, are, that we think are wealthy, many people that make over $100,000 in New York City may find themselves paying more taxes. You and I both know that's not wealthy in New York City. Right. Well, we both, so the, the issue of the tax, the, uh, holding the line on taxes is so important. Not irresponsible taxes. I want your listeners to know there are irresponsible tax cuts. And the idea that income inequality only happens with Republican administrations is just not true. It happened under Bill Clinton because of the, of, of the dot-com uh, internet boom. It ha- because of what you saw was a lot of people making money on the internet. And, and venture capitalists got together and made a lot of money. We saw income inequality exacerbate under there. Under President Obama, it also exacerbated. So the idea of income inequality happens. happens um, it's not to blame on one single party. It's designed to, you, we could pinpoint it on several things. I think that there are times in our economy where there are aspects of it that boom. When you have things that boom, like the internet. The internet has created an economy that we've never seen before. It wasn't around in the 50s. Right. And that has created an incredible amount of wealthier people than ever before. From your Google head to the person that, that just presses uh, data entry at Google is making a lot more money than a lot of other people. So we have an entire new economy. And it just so happens that a lot of those people have been very fortunate. They have had people in government to push tax cuts that are irresponsible, that impact them in a, in a, in a way that wouldn't impact you. I mean, that's irresponsible. But not all tax cuts and holding the line on taxes are bad. We still, in New York City, spend $30,000 per pupil. Per pupil in our New York City public schools, $30,000 per student. That's twice more than the next, the next um, 
uh, local government pays for their for their students to go to school. So when you look at how much money we spend on public services and on education, we're still spending more money than anyone else is in New York, and we still don't get the same. So the when same you say votes. like when you say anyone else, are you talking about other democratic countries? No, I'm talking about our country here. Oh, right, comparing right. us to other countries is difficult. Like I hear people comparing us to Sweden and their Denmark, healthcare. Norway. It's totally different. They're homogeneous there. Right. We have a whole different situation. We have millions of people that. We have at least 11 million, at least 11 million people that are here undocumented. Those individuals also get services. Those individuals have services that are being paid for by taxpayers. The question, that the answer that, and I'm a pro-immigrant guy, so save your emails. Um, the issue that a lot of folks have, and this is where I'm here to bring some information to you that you may not know is happening on that side. 26 attorney generals get together and say, listen, we have at least 11 million people that we weren't prepared for that are currently in our schools, they're here, they're costing us money, we need, to, we need more money to be able to pay for these services for these individual people. So the issue of public services in our own country is much more complicated than a country like Denmark, just because on the class system, uh, uh, the diversity in our people, the diversity of, of, of citizenship status is different. We have more undocumented people in the United States than there are people in entire populations of some of those countries that people want to compare us to. I understand, I understand. But I also understand that we have the biggest economy in the world, right? And, you know, and I think we could do more with, our, you know, with, with uh, acclimating or you know, engaging the middle class you know, in achieving mobility. You know, I think, how about the middle class? Like if, you know, that's like the ultimate test of, of, of whether a country is doing enough for their citizens. And our middle class is struggling and they've been struggling since the 1960s you know so so what is that like what is the reason for that you know and it's because i, I really do think it's because these irresponsible tax breaks and i think you know this idea that is going to trickle down to the american people it has not worked it has not worked because in theory you know who who's to say if you know just because all of a sudden you have a lot more money that you want to continue this business or you want to like hire people especially you know, uh, you know, unemployment or services or lawsuits. Like, I just find that to be a bit naive. And also, luxury luxury items go up whenever there's tax breaks. Yeah. You know, so so you know that goes against uh, you know these corporations reinvesting in their business and providing more jobs. What we saw is a lot of them do stock buybacks with that money. Yeah. And that was a problem because that wasn't the intent. But we also have to remember that something you said we did try. Um, you mentioned something that I think is very interesting and I agree with. Like, What can we do to help the middle class and to help people that are striving to get into the middle class? And middle class is a state of mind uh, many times in a state of bank account, obviously, because what's middle class in New York City is not middle class in Wyoming. You know that. Right. Um, but we tried that. And, and you know what ended up happening was um, the Great Recession happened because of that. Government said, you know, people need to have an ability to, uh, to, to move socially upwards to right. the middle class and there's no better indication as you now know than being a homeowner and being a homeowner is so important because not only does it give you that tax break for that mortgage payment right um it gives you a tax it gives you a, a sense of ownership in the united states and, and in the american dream that we often hear about well we tried that and we ended up lessening the requirements of for getting a mortgage and we collectively as a country voted and supported supported the idea that people should be able to get property when many of them couldn't afford it. And then you had greedy banks that took advantage of that, and they started lending money to people who couldn't afford it, knowingly lend the money, that they couldn't afford these properties. And what ultimately happens is that 
that builders do, they don't have the money, and we have foreclosures. Foreclosures went up in the black and Hispanic community like never before because so many of us wanted to have that American dream that many of our parents went up there, got mortgages that they, they knew they could not afford, right. and then they ended up getting foreclosed on. Right. So, you know, what can government do? Well, government tried that. They did. When you tell someone, listen, you want to borrow, borrow money for a house, and I know that they require 10 pieces of paper, 10 pieces of documents, of finances, etc., don't worry, but just tell us how much you make. We're going to lessen that requirement because we noticed that by giving all of that, it, it ices you out. And we don't want to ice you out anymore. So we're going to lessen those things. Well, a lot of our families saw opportunity. And they said, finally. And they bought houses in Yonkers. And they bought houses in Long Island. And they bought upstate everywhere. Pennsylvania, Poconos, you see it everywhere. And what happens is eventually, you know, you can't afford it. Mm-hmm. Banks knew what they were doing, but so did the person applying. And that's when, ah, Polanco, there you go. You know, my my family members that signed up for that mortgage, they knew what they they knew they were gonna have, but they wanted that America. They wanted a piece of the pie so much that they said, "We can do it. We can do it." And they spread themselves too thin. So the question then becomes: When you have greedy banks and irresponsible uh, uh, borrowers getting together, you create a catastrophe financially, and that's what happened uh, in the Great Recession. President Obama came in, and that's what he inherited. Remember that. So he's you know his policies and his plans of attack took us out of that. Flat out, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. His policies and, 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 and what he put together got us out of the Great Recession. But that Great Recession happened because of a combination of greedy banks being irresponsible with their lending and borrowers who should have known better found themselves leading to one of the greatest foreclosures. And then, again, there are many good, hardworking borrowers that just lost their jobs and they couldn't make ends meet. And those are not the individuals that I'm referring to here. I'm talking about the many who knew they couldn't afford and took out these massive mortgages, contributed also to the Great Recession. Right, right. You know, going back to Trump, right, what are the conversations that you're having with your Republican colleagues? They don't Um, like me too much. mm, Okay, so you mentioned you were a part of the, you know, you mentioned 10% of the Republicans that don't really mess with Trump like that. Yeah, there's not too many of us, and we've been iced out. This is is real, man. This Mm. is... uh, I, I, ran for, I ran for public advocate as a Republican, man. I, nobody showed up to my fundraisers. Mm. Republicans, no one would come and support me at all. At all. As a matter of fact, 80,000 Republicans let, decided to vote against me and go to the third party, the conservative candidate in the race. First time that's ever been seen. No, no third party has ever gotten that. It's always been 1%, 2%. This guy got almost 10% of the vote from me, who should have come to me. Um, because my ideas of, of how I viewed the situation coming out of President Trump. And that was... There's... there's, I find that the Democrats have more room for diversity of thought. Mm -hmm. You have AOC and her her socialism, her democratic socialism that I cannot even deal with at all. But then at the same time, you see that that party, there can be disagreements. You have people like Hakeem Jeffries, who will be speaker one day out of Brooklyn. Uh, he pushes back on that. You have guys like Senator Manchin who pushes back on that. And at the end of the day, everything is cool. You have In New York, you have guys like Senator Gustavo Rivera, young Latino, who pushes back on the governor. The governor pushes back on him. They push back on the mayor. Everybody, it's, it's healthy to have disagreements on policy. Here, my goodness, I've never seen anything like this. So I don't like the fact that we're going to speak like that about undocumented people. Right. And I don't like the fact that you cut the Dreamer program because I have students that are Dreamers. And I make it... And make it known, you cut me off because you don't want to get him mad or the people that like him mad? i never seen anything like this before, man. So my friendships have dwindled over <coughs> the time before him when, you know, you built... Oh, bless you, man. Thank you, you. Have, um, 
it'll be fortunate, but 16 years of hard work, I had been commissioner of the New York City Board of Elections, I had, uh, you know, I had a lot of, a, a lot of friends and political allies, and once I said, yo, what is going on? We can't subscribe to banning Muslims. Muslims right. are my friends. Right. What, I, what I did was, and I don't mean, I don't, again, I, I'm not just because this is like a truth serum in this water, I guess. Um, one of the things... Well, you got that, some other serum. No, man, I can't touch that. <laughs> one of the things that, that I noticed, I said to my friends, I said, guys, let me, let me be real with you. Why this is so hard. If, if I saw a Dominican guy running for president of the United States, and that Dominican guy comes down an escalator, and he goes on the microphone and he says, you have uh, these undocumented Irish running around and they don't send their best. Some are uh, the rapists and murderers. And he does that. And then later on, he says something like, you know what, Anglicans? I, Jose de la Cruz, proclaim an immediate ban on Anglicans coming to the United States, right? And then he goes off and tells Italians, what do you got to lose? Look at your condition. Right, Look right, at this. Right, right, right. I would never support that Dominican. Mm. Because those people he mentioned are the people that made me who I am. Mm -hmm. And those people he mentioned, many of them are Americans. Mm. And I do not appreciate that kind of talk. And I don't like that. I don't like the people that cheer for that. So I would not support him. So when I look at my brothers and I'm like, guys, you know what he said about this and that? I would not be who I am if it wasn't for Irish. Mm -hmm. Catholic priests and sisters, nuns. I would not be where I am if it wasn't for Mexicans. I would not be where I am if it wasn't for my Muslim neighbors. I would not be where I would not. Have, my friends are all around. Who are? What's going on here? Right. So I didn't understand how they didn't see things my way. Mm. So I was vocal about it. So let me ask you this: Would you agree in the statement, the majority of people who voted for Trump are not bad people, but the majority of people who voted for Trump didn't think racism was a deal breaker. That's two questions. That's not fair. You asking me? You asking two questions in one? That's not fair. Well, you know. That's two questions. All right, Trump. All right, okay. So, do you think people that voted? Do you think the majority of the people that voted for Trump are bad people? Good question. There are definitely a lot of bad people that voted for Trump. <laughs> so you're saying the majority? I didn't say that. I didn't say that because I know a lot of people that did, and they're okay. not bad people. Okay. So uh, okay. So for those people that are not bad people, yeah, that voted for Trump, yeah. would you agree that? Racism was not a deal breaker nah, for them. it was a deal breaker for them. Nope. Mm -hmm. It's a problem for me, bro. Right, right, It's right. a big problem for me because you know what? A lot of these people are my good friends. I mean, I have a handful of good friends. They know who they are, Phil. Uh, <laughs> Adam. Uh, you guys are good people, but it wasn't a deal breaker for you. And, and the reason it wasn't a deal breaker for them, I believe, is that they didn't view the things how I viewed them. They were more concerned with a Supreme Court justice that was conservative, and I couldn't care less about that at mm. all. I mean, here I was in my debate for public advocate on New York One against the now Attorney General in New York, and you know, one of the questions was, who was your favorite justice? And I said, Thurgood Marshall. You had to hear the Republicans go, what? Well, I just believe that the Constitution is a living document. I don't, I'm not down with this uh, court whoring, as I call it. Like, right. you're going to... You're gonna, you're going to sell out your principles for purposes of having a conservative judge. I just viewed that to be wrong, but they, they viewed it to be right. Mm -hmm. Others were, they saw the racism and they cared more about the abortion issue. Right. I saw that a lot in our Latino community. Right. People that look like you and me voted for him in great numbers because of the abortion issue mm -hmm. and the fact that he was strong on Israel and supported Israel. Um, so a lot of them had their own reasons to look past that stuff. I just, it was too much for me. Right. And there should be room in the in the party for people like me. Right. And I don't know if there's gonna be room. I don't know. I don't I don't know what's gonna happen there. I don't know, to mm. be honest with you. I don't know if there's enough I don't know if there's enough room for dudes that didn't support this guy. Like 
in that side, there's room. For example, if you didn't support Biden, there's room. If you didn't support, if you don't support Biden now, there's room. There's a lot of room. Right, there's a lot of room over there. So it's like, a, a, the, 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 in order for the Republican Party to move forward, I really believe that they have to now say, okay, we made a mistake here. Mm. Because I think that regionally, we're, regionally, we may have made a mistake. They would look at me, Polanco, we won seats. You're wrong. Because we won this, we won that, we got the Supreme Court, we got this and the other. And they'll say, we're wrong. I say, no, we're, we're going to lose in the long run. In the long run. We have to think future-wise. Right. I think we're going to, I think it's going to cost us. I may, I may be totally wrong. And this whole thing that he started with MAGA may be like, I may be totally wrong, bro. Mm -hmm. But w whatever it is, it wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? And that's good. And I respect the fact that you stuck it, to your principles. It wasn't for me. And that my, that my, you weren't blinded by your political affiliation and no, allegiance. No, right? No, 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 no. You know, and I don't have a lot of things uh, great to say about the Republican Party, but I would say that Republicans are great with messaging, you know, great with uh, charging terms with a negative association, you know, as opposed to Democrats. Democrats are horrible. For example, Republicans, they support the right to work which really were anti-union rules, right? Um, you're against a, a woman's right to choose. You call that pro-life. Who wants to be against life? I don't want to be against life, but that's a good way to, you know, to... Our messaging is incredible. Oh, my God. Yep. You know, uh, estate tax. You know, we, we say an estate tax is something that uh, most Americans don't have to pay, and yet it stimulates the economy for the benefit of, of, of the majority of Americans, right? Republicans term it the death tax. Who wants to get taxed after death? Not I. Right. Right. You know. Great but then, messaging. yeah, great messaging. Um, and then you turn around and you see the Democrats. And you know, look, I'm for defunding the police. Is not the best term in the world. You know, a lot of people you hear that and you're like, oh, you're going to take all the money away from police departments. It's it's a it's a stupid message. You no, know what? Practice. But Holy smokes. I agree. Right, I know, I know. I, but I agree with the idea in that, you know, if you break it down to people that don't do their research, it's like, no, do you agree reallocating resources from the police department and giving it to the community uh, so that they can uh, create, uh, you know, social programs so that they can uh, improve their educational systems? And a lot of people would probably agree to that, right? But defund the police doesn't give you that. It doesn't give you that messaging. No. Even... The word reparations, I feel, needs to get changed. I think reparations is a great topic to debate. I think it should be changed. And I think people... Reparations is a very divisive topic because you have a lot of a lot of white people who are like, yo, I ain't, I ain't nobody. Yeah. I'm an immigrant from Italy. I ain't paying for that. Right. I'm an immigrant from Ireland. I ain't paying for that. Why should I pay for that? Well, the <laughs> same way why... You know, but, but that's a... No, that's... But, but, you know, like corporations or companies that benefited historically should pay for that, right? It's yeah. not them. So that's what they need to understand, right? The same way that if I say that I'm for reparations, I need to understand that as a Dominican-American, that money doesn't come to me because right. I didn't go through the African-American right. experience, right? Right. But, you know, again, it's all about language and Democrats are horrible yeah. at that. That's why um, I'm, I'm pretty impressed by... Um, the way Yang handles language, right? Yang, um, Andrew, Andrew Yang, Yang yeah. yeah, you know, um, he believes in universal income, right? And uh. he calls it the uh, the the freedom dividend, right? Thousand dollars, thousand dollars, a thousand dollars. What do you think about that? It's crazy. <laughs> Why is it crazy? It's insane. 
I love Dr. King. Dr. King mentioned that, by of the way. Of course. Yeah. Dr. King, some say he was killed for that. Some, well... For, uh, for economic equality. It was okay if he was saying social, please let us in. But as soon as it started talking about economic equality, things went sour for him. I don't know if that's why... I know. I, I'm speculating, uh, you know. killed Dr. King. That bad person killed Dr. King. I don't know if that's why he did that. But... Um, I, I, I disagree with it. It's just that on economics, it's just it's just a terrible idea. Some some pe- some people actually think that it's okay to give people money to stay home. Some people think it's okay for people to make money, that to take money from Charlie going to work and hustling, getting clients. No, hold up, and take that money. And but I'm not making money. five million a year. No, no, but it's not gonna come out of the guy making. It's gonna come. That's the, that's one of the issues that I think some of the more uh, liberals, some of the more progressive folk that I love and care about, don't quite understand. It's not just them. It's all of us paying. I don't want to pay for some dude staying home. I don't want to do that. That's not good. That that leads to things that I don't like. You go home and you stay home and I work and I give you money. I've, I've worked very hard in my whole life. You're going to get out of work. So $1,000 a month, I think when you think about that, we have to also take into account the billions of dollars that we pay as taxpayers for food assistance, for taxes, for rent assistance, for educational assistance, for medical health insurance assistance. We are a great country. And that's something that I hope young people realize. Our country is incredible. Not only does our country make sure that our poorest have food, our country's not perfect. And anyone who's in my class knows that we talk about American intervention in America, and I talk about American intervention around the world, we talk about where we're imperfect. We're imperfect with international intervention, we're imperfect with race relations, we're imperfect with class relations, we are an imperfect country. No country's perfect, we are imperfect. So let me get that out of the way. But our country's incredible. Because Charlie, our poor people, where I grew up, me and my family and those around me, we had food assistance. We had rental assistance. We saw, we saw Medicaid. We had health insurance assistance. So billions of dollars are paid by people that are paying taxes so that we can have support and that we can have a safety net and that we can get our, our, our feet on the ground. And in addition to that, the Dominican Republic gets hundreds of millions of dollars a year in assistance. And so do other countries around the world. We also help other countries around the world get on their feet as well. So not only do we take care of our own, but internationally, we're giving out grants, we're giving out aid, we are doing our part internationally. So I think we are an amazing country. We're not perfect, we're amazing. So, But we're not the best in mobility. When you talk about the 13 democratic countries, we're like second to but last. Again, you, you compare us to countries that are so homogeneous, they don't have 11 million undocumented, they don't have the racial injustices that we've had, they don't have... You know, these other countries are homogeneous, which is why they believe in more... And they're um, smaller. Ho- ho- yeah, right. But they're smaller. And they're they have small. Less cer- but, 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 like, we, but, but, like, we have the biggest economy. Like, there's, like, there's... How many billionaires do we have in this country? Many, but, Charlie, but that the issue is that we are so much different than those other countries. Our country's so unique. Do you believe so in billionaires? Ways. Huh? Like, do you believe billionaires should, should, should be billionaires? I believe that, that people should make as much money as they can and people should work as hard as they can. And I, and I believe that, Charlie, if you could be a billionaire, I would encourage you to keep making so you money. So you think it's okay for Judge Judy to make $41 million or whatever she makes a year and, and Judge Sotomayor, who is pretty much impacting the way we live our lives on a daily basis on the Supreme Court. It's a different economy. Again, right. So we're talking about market forces here, right? Yeah, but the market forces this is not due to merit. not public service. It's just, it's just so different. Those two economies are different. Like, why should LeBron make all that money, but a heart surgeon make uh, a tenth of that? Because when you look at it, the people that can dunk on a dude that's seven foot tall, 
are much less and people are willing to pay to see that. So the market says LeBron is worth so many millions of dollars. The doctor, there are more people that can do that kind of surgery, even if it's, if, if it's limited. So if you have a thousand people that could do it in the country, that's still a lot more than the two people that could do what LeBron does. So the market forces are completely different in those two economies. But, but you don't think that, okay, if a person is a five billionaire, I think he'll be fine with three billion and you can disperse the two billion to the rest of the economy so that most Americans could live better. I think they pay taxes and I think that they should... Whatever. But but that's the issue. I don't think they've paid they pay I, enough taxes. We I have think a president. The corporation didn't pay a lot. I saw that who pays seven hundred. We have a president. We have a president that brags about not paying taxes. Yeah, dude, I'm not I'm not defending that kind of irresponsibility and taking advantage of a system. That's unfair. That goes to my whole argument on responsibility. Our individual responsibility goes to corporations too. They have to pay their fair share. I'm down with that, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't have billionaires. They have to pay their fair share. So there's no reason why a billionaire is paying. Unless, uh, I know that the argument is, well, they're contributing more. No, no. The, the tax rate should be the same. We should, we should be able to look at a dude making X amount of money and say there's no reason why he's paying less in taxes than a secretary. I agree with that. But, does it, but doesn't that argument go against meritocracy? How? Um, for example, uh, you know, when it comes to work and effort, you know, when it comes to um, saying that, you know, you could be, as long as you work hard, you can achieve and you can be whatever you want, right? But a person, a surgeon is working just as hard as let's say a basketball player, and you know, and the thing with the basketball is, for me, is different because they're also making money for owners, right? And and you know, so they're getting only a small percentage of what the owners are getting. But when it comes to uh, you know professions that not, that are allowed to flourish because of the market forces, and and then we cut uh, you know corporate taxes, you know, uh, money that's just making money because there's money there yeah. um, as opposed to folks that don't have that financial backing and yet they're working hard but they're not progressing in the same way there's an unfairness that's rooted in 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 something that is not meritocracy you know like when the wall street uh you know when the wall street um you know banks you know were were asking for a bailout you know they were asking for a bailout because they were struggling and they blamed it on the market right Okay, so you want money, you want the United States to come in to help you out when the market, you're saying that it was not your fault. You're blaming it on the market. But you know what? Whenever the market makes money for you, and it's not your fault, you just happen to be in a market that makes money for you, you're not giving that money away. Right. You know, so, so I feel like that's the system that we're living in. Only the folks that have money are actually benefiting, and it is not due to their efforts or their hard work, you know, this American ideology that everyone deserves what they get. And that's why I have such a strong argument against billionaires, because once you have money and you put it in an account and it's just sitting there and it's making so much more because of the interest rates, you know, that's something that an average Joe Schmo doesn't have. I understand your argument. I do. I understand your problem with... Um with billionaires, but the issue that I, I, I think uh, I think we agree on, on the issue of having them pay their fair share, but we also have to encourage um, uh, the idea that you can strive to make the most money that you can make and encourage that kind of thought. It's, it's, it's fundamental to the American experience, and not everyone's going to benefit from that. We see that, right? Only, there's only a handful of billionaires. Um, but billionaires are the boogeyman right now because there are a lot of people that are suffering. And you look at these rich people and you're like, why do they have all of that and I don't, right? And you start thinking about all these reasons. And I think those are fair arguments. But the idea that we shouldn't have them, I think it's, it's, um, I think it's the wrong message because then it will limit 
our ability to excel. And I don't think that's something that we want to do as a country. We're better off when we, when we offer an opportunity for people to try to make the most money and make the best of themselves that they can. We're all, we all win at the end of the day. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. But Maybe we're not winning sense. now. I'll tell you why I think we all win at the end of the day. When we tell Pfizer, guys, you go out there, make all the money you want to make. This is America. We are not a capitalist country. We're a mixed economy, for those of you that are hearing. Uh, but this idea, uh, this, this spirit of capitalism that Charlie's talking about when he mentions meritocracy and the American dream is the spirit, the idea. Well, by having that spirit, we get the best medicines come out of the of, of our. We get the best medicine, the best research and development are coming out of the United States. We have the best scientists, the best doctors. So that only could, a few people have access to. A lot of us have access to medicine. I don't know. Like the people in Silicon Valley are are are, are chopping away at those Vyvanse pills, and those Vyvanse pills are like four hundred dollars, you but know. It, and it's opening their third eye, and the average American isn't going to work with that kind of stamina. But I just feel that if we encourage Charlie to make the best to be the best criminal defense attorney in the country and he has that ability to make x amount of money infinite amount of money the idea is that he's going to work so hard that he's going to be the best criminal defense attorney ever and he's going to excel as much as possible when we cap that or when we discourage that we are now limiting potential and that goes against again this country isn't perfect but it goes against the 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 idea of this is a place where you can be anything you want to be right I, I know, Charlie, I've read your writings. I know how you feel about the idea <laughs> of the American dream. I know. There are people who look at society today and say the American dream is dead. The American dream was fake. The American dream never happened. This is not a meritocracy. Look at Trump and his kids. And we, I mean, when, 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 when those arguments are made, right, we have to remember that the, the American dream is an idea that if you work hard... You may not always succeed, but you can. It can happen. It can happen here, and it can happen elsewhere. This country makes it so that you at least, at least you have a drive. That drive is priceless. That, that drive to seek a life where you have, uh, where you know that you can work hard and you can provide for your family is why we work hard and why we provide for our families. The fact that some people work hard and don't doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. The fact that some people work very hard and they never experience it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Because it exists for me. It exists for me and it exists for people I've seen with my own eyes. People that say, I'm here, my parents left a, a condition where that could never happen and they instilled in me this drive. They called it the American dream. I'm living it. I'm, I'm striving for it. I'm hungry like crazy and I want to experience it. So it doesn't work for everybody. Just like Just Say No doesn't work for everybody. Right. Nancy Reagan says Just Say No. I was watching Different Strokes. And she came out with some Just Say No stuff. And I remember the Fried X commercial. This is your brain. And this is your brain on drugs. You know, that doesn't work for everybody. But that, in combination with my dad telling me that he has no problems killing me and going to jail and having three meals a day in France, convinced me <laughs> not to do drugs. Right? Right, right. So you'd be surprised. So... It, 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 just because it's not absolute doesn't mean that it isn't real. Right. So I, I strongly believe that the reason why, and you may, not, you may not agree with me, but the reason why a lot of us work hard, we go to these schools, we take on these debts, we, is to improve ourselves so that we can achieve that idea of the American dream. And some of us achieve it. Some of us don't. Some of us see other people achieve it unfairly. They never worked hard, so we get mad, right? 
Some people say, why is Ivanka Trump in the White House as a freaking assistant to the president? The fuck she do, right? The, the American dream isn't real. The American dream is real, right? It's not evenly applied. It's not equally applied. We see injustice. We see racial injustice. We saw many other conditions as to why it's not, why, why so many people won't achieve it, right? But that doesn't mean it's not there, and it doesn't mean it's not a driving force. Right. And I strongly believe that if we don't believe in that, but fuck, I believe that if we somehow mm. as a group said, ah, that doesn't exist. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Damn it. You have Imagine. to you have to you have to think that you can achieve progress. I'm just really wary about you focusing on that dream so obsessively that your focus primarily just becomes self-interest and less about building community and um building those around you. Um you know and and, and also I'm I'm very careful into think thinking that because I've made it out everyone else should be able to make it out because uh you know some would say that I'm an exception some would say that you're an exception obviously we don't want that to be the case you know I know many folks that are just like me that have worked hard and have done really good for themselves right yeah. uh, but if it wasn't for those affirmative action policies I, I probably would have not been here right what now. a great country we live in I went to college on the EOP me too so I know all about affirmative action and financial yeah. aid. And I love this country but, because of it, man. But historically, has the Republican administration the Repu the, been pro-affirmative action? Well, there are many in the party that the overwhelming number of people haven't. And they haven't been in favor of affirmative action for a whole host of reasons, but it's right. misapplied. But there are other people that view affirmative action, and when you explain to them the reasons for it and who should get it, it does apply. Right. There's some people in my party that don't agree with it. Even if you ask me, and I went to EOP, if you told me, that and this is where I got in trouble sometimes, believe it or not, at SUNY Binghamton then Albany. If you told me that you had a rich Latino kid and uh, a poor white kid from Columbia County, right. and there was one seat left, and you're gonna give the seat to that black kid, even though that black kid had lower grades, etc., that's an argument that you're never gonna win on. You're gonna have a lot of people disagree on that because this kid had better grades and he's in complete poverty. We know there are a lot of poor whites. It's another issue we gotta you know, eventually realize. It's not just us. You're gonna tell me that that kid shouldn't get the shot and that wealthy Latino kid should? That's a hard one. And the, 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 the example that always uses Michael Jordan's kid. That's the one right. that always comes up. Right, right. But affirmative action is important. Affirmative action when applied correctly is important. Affirmative action is important when applied correctly. Right. And many in my party, uh, because of the belief system of... Um, of uh, not not looking at, at race as a as a as a requirement, you're not gonna get a lot of support. But under Republican administrations, like even President Nixon's administration, we saw a lot of affirmative action programs come to play. And I thought that you know Republicans, depending on who the Republican is, uh, will support this. But again, we we look at party identifications, and 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 unfortunately, we look at a policy that we approve of. And then we say, but the Republicans don't like it, when in fact you have Republicans that support those issues. Right. Right? And you have a lot of Democrats that don't. You have Democrats that don't like affirmative action. The question then becomes, do you have more of a group in that party? And the answer is yes. There's more people in the Republican Party that oppose affirmative action programs than you would have in the Democratic Party. But there are a lot of people from all parties that support it. But that's my point. Program like affirmative action. Isn't this country great? You want to talk about... If you were in the Dominican Republic, man, if you were in the Dominican Republic, that stuff doesn't exist, man. Right, right. Those opportunities aren't there. See, but the thing is that also as as sons of, of immigrants, right, like it's really easy for us to be like, oh, look where we come from. This is great. Not knowing, and again, I know you're going to bring up the whole argument that other countries are homogeneous, but other countries are doing it better. You know, yes, they may have less people, but maybe there's a way where they're, they are democratic capitalist countries, but 
they're also um, creating alternative ways to to help the middle class, you know, and and I feel that because we come from the Dominican Republic where we don't have affirmative action, we're like, oh, this is great. But there's either, you know, there's even better options out there that we should be aspiring to as Americans. Like student loan forgiveness is something that we should be strongly considering. These interest rates, the fact that you could go to law school and take out 250000 and by the time you end up paying it, you pay back $400,000, that's fucking criminal to me. And 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 who is and who are the ones that are that are being disadvantaged? Are the are the poor folks that want to aspire, that want to achieve that American dream, that buy into that hype, right? And they're taking out loans, and then what? You know, does that improve their their quality of life yeah. when when you come out and you have to pay a thousand dollars in student loan? Bro, fifteen ninety five a month. God damn, bro. bro! It's a lot of money, bro. But do you know what? That was a choice I made. No, hold up, bro. I made that You know choice. what? A lot, of, a lot of people are in the military, okay. not because, you know, yeah, that's a choice that they made, but they also wanted a better life, and that yeah. was the only way they found, you know, it's... I, that, was, yeah, that was my opportunity. I made that decision. Now, what, do I wish someone came and just said, hey, Palanco, yo, don't worry about that. That'd be great. So, right? so, the fact so, that so, doesn't so happen, the but, fact that doesn't happen doesn't mean this isn't the freaking best country on earth. All right, but do you think that we would be greater if, you look, we're, we're living at a time right now where there's less people that are able, less young people that are able to purchase homes. Yeah. That that should be a concern. That should be a concern for us Americans. You know, especially, you know, us that proclaim that we're great and that we're doing better than other countries. The fact that our young people cannot afford uh, decent health care is something that we should take seriously. Absolutely. You know, you know, a, a country that's great should be taking care of those things. Yeah, I think, but I think we, we do a great job at it. We have to do a better job. Okay. I mean, right, come yeah, on, we, of course we, we have to do a better that. job, but the comparison is in other countries. The comparison is what's fair. And I think that if you have 25 million people that currently have um, the Affordable uh, Care Act under President Obama, the fair thing would be how do we improve it so that other people have it? It's not getting rid of that and hurting 25 million people. Right. There's ways to improve a system that doesn't mean that we have to socialize it, right? right. I think you can have health insurance. We, we have to remember that the people that fall in the, in, the, in the place where they don't have health insurance in our country... The poor people in our country have Medicaid. The rich people and upper middle class and people that work have insurance through their work. Then there were that other group, the 25 million that are covered that were in between, that couldn't get Medicaid because they made too much but can't afford their own medical. And what happens to them? We have to address that. And we have to do it as a country. And getting rid of what's there now is not the answer. But it doesn't mean we have to socialize medicine, right? Mm. It doesn't mean we have to have Medicaid for everybody. That would be insane. It would be insane because... Why would, be, why would that be insane? Because when you do the math, this is something that um, uh, Bernie Sanders was proposing. It came out to $30 trillion. And $30 trillion is money that would be coming out of taxpayers that are middle class, not corporations. So the idea that corporations would pay it would lead to mass unemployment and would lead to things that... They will never happen. So we have to stop selling people lies. Like, Mexico is going to pay for the wall. Never going to happen. $30 trillion, never going to happen. Because what you do is that you don't have a means test. So you have the wealthy Michael Jordan's son paying, getting his health insurance paid by Charlie and Charlie and his kid. That's not fair. So what Bernie Sanders was proposing with socialized medicine, there is no private health insurance under that system. Mm. That system means that you don't have the ability to have private health insurance. There is a middle way, and that's one of the things that now President-elect Biden was pushing, which he keeps the best of the Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. He keeps Medicaid and expands Medicaid, but then he figures out a way that the people in between can buy from the markets at a, at a lower subsidized um, rate so that they too can participate in health insurance. That's the answer. Right. But it's not socialized because then we lose out on the benefits of 
of having the insurance that we have now. And you're never going to get support for that. I grew up on Medicaid. You don't want to have that. You want to have your insurance if you can. If somebody got, if you told someone you're going to get rid, you're going to get rid of that health insurance that you have, and you're going to get a Medicaid card instead, you're never going to get that passed. So there's ways we can improve it, but man, to think that there's millions of people in our communities that need a doctor and could see one because Charlie pays his taxes and this country looks out for them, that's a good thing. Right. A lot of other countries don't have that. And the countries that do have socialized medicine, they look at our country, those small countries that you keep comparing us to, they look at our country as the country for research and development, cutting-edge technology, and often they have the medicines after we make them. And they, their tax rate many times is at 50%, which is a lot of money, Charlie. Could you imagine everyone paying 50% of their money? Not the high-end people. Everyone paying up to 50% of their money in taxes. I know, but there's less crime, and they're, you know, Norway is considered like the happiest people in the world. Shouldn't we strive to be happy? I think we're happy, man. We're happy. Or, or just a few. I agree. I just agree. a few we of us should be happy. be happy. We should all come to Charlie's podcast. <laughs> Listen, man, well, you've been here for about two hours and a half, and we haven't even spoken about the elections. We should speak about that briefly. But, but before we get to the elections, I want to ask you this. Do you think, you know, and, you know, and I taught unequal democracy. Oh, and by the way, I want to thank you for also giving me your recommendation. I was, uh, you know, en route to become a professor at, at Rutgers University. Like, I look to you for some advice, so I appreciate that oh, for picking up the phone and talking to me about that. Absolutely. And, you know, and I was teaching unequal democracy, and, and the uh, book that I was reading was exposing me to, like, the harmful effects of lobbying in Washington, D.C. Yeah. What do you think about that? Like, um, the rise in corporate interest through lobbyists in Washington. Well, the, the influence of these co corporations on government um, is, a, is an issue many times because these individuals, the lobbying as a profession is as old as, right. as, our, as our founding. Right. Um, the fact that people stand on lobbies to convince elected officials has gone from people standing on lobbies to a professionalized group of people that often... You know, Harm society, so big tobacco. Yeah, no, we could go down the list of things that are not good for society that are lobbied in government, and because there are jobs involved, because there's money involved, they're going to have those interests represented. When you have someone want to go in there and and get rid of oil, oil employs millions of people. Millions of people are dependent on oil, so you're going to have people that are going to say, "Hey, listen, I know that there's issues with the environment, but if you all of a sudden got rid of oil." We're going to have millions of people unemployed. It's going to hurt the market, and a lot of people need this, so don't do this. That's the kind of lobbying that a lot of us that care about the environment go, damn, that sucks. But when you think about having a job there and feeding for your family, you're happy someone's there standing up for your interests. And that's something that is going to be uh, important for us to somehow lessen the influence of money in elections. But having people representing their interests is the American way. Now, how does that translate to campaign dollars is something that we may be able to take a look at. Should we limit the amount of money that is, should we, should we cap it? Uh, is, is there anything we can do? The Supreme Court said that a co corporations have First Amendment rights and we can't impose limitations on their rights to free speech because they consider, you know, supporting elected officials as, as free speech. But there are things we should take a look at. For example, if I'm proposing a bill or I'm voting on a bill and right before you have a fundraiser for me, and your your people are bringing me checks, and then I'm voting in favor of something. That that's not nice. It, it smells funny, and that's what Americans are upset about. But, but 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 isn't that the American way to make as much money as possible, even if it's profit over people? No, I, it is. It is. It is. Uh, the American way was that the American way is also regulated. The American way is also regulated, and we have regulations because of the American way. The Thirty Three Act happened after the Great Depression because the Americans people got together and say, you know what, 
these bankers are a little greedy. Let's hold them back a little bit and make right. the regulations. So we do have regulations. So there are things that have to be regulated because at the end of the day, if we don't, it could be harmful. Mm -hmm. So uh, the idea that that means no holds barred, that's not what the American dream is about. It doesn't mean no holds barred. It, you know, the American way also involves regulation uh, for purpose of the environment. And I'll tell you this, it was Theodore Roosevelt that, that really focused on nature and preserving parks and federal lands and making sure that big businesses don't pollute. So, you know, it's interesting how the parties have changed throughout the years and how, you know, different interest groups shape public policy and what parties get supported. But they're good people in both sides and they're bad people on both, both sides. sides. <laughs> That's a, such a political answer. But good job, though. Um, what about these damn elections, man? Should we stick a fork in it? It's over now. It's over. Okay. Yeah. Right. Be a, the concession that everybody wants is not a constitutional requirement. It'd be nice. Right. It's not. It's not. I'd be nice and it'd be good for national security reasons so that right. the new president-elect can get in there and get the information. Right, wants. exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that's, yeah, that's it's terrible that, that he's not given that option. And it's I think corny. Biden officially won Georgia today. So Yeah, yeah, it's corny. What's happening now is just cornball. Yeah, well, I appreciate the fact that, you know, you're not allowing your allegiance to the Republican no, Party no, no. To, to, to get you into this, uh, you know, conspiracy theories about mail fraud no, and I'm stuff American like that. No, I'm American first, man. You know that. <laughs> yeah, because we never had you know, such allegations made on a national level. And, uh, you know, I think it's detrimental to our idea of democracy. Oh. It, 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 you know, it goes against it. And it's, you know, and I don't think, you know, uh, Trump's attorneys are doing him any favors. They're not gaining any steam. No, I think... Not. A lot of them are even quit the cases. This is no... no really? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I, you know, I just uh, read somewhere today that... Uh, they're, they're uh, you know, they incorrectly filed a, a motion in a, in a wrong jurisdiction. Yeah. Like, it's like, they're just... Pulling shit out of their ass right now. Yeah. Um, but um, do you think that he's going to concede at any point? Yeah, he will probably later on. Later on, what January seventeenth? Maybe. <laughs> it's not in his style to concede. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, but as far as the people's trust, do you think that uh, you know Trump's reaction to the elections um, or him bringing up mail fraud? Do you think uh, this is causing? Or, you know, this is causing people to distrust the government. Yeah, 71 um, million people voted for him. They, they, and a good 70% of them think there was fraud. So there's, a lot of people are going to think there was fraud for a while. Right, yeah. So, but like, do you think that's irreparable harm? That, you, like, do you think we could come out of this within, eight you know, years. eight years? Yeah. It's going to take people eight years to eight forget years. about this. Uh -huh. Eight really? years. It's not going to happen overnight. Interesting. Okay. And, um, I'm sure this is uh, more layered than just race, but how much of his election you think in 2016 uh, was a backlash to us having our first black president? I think a lot of people in the country um, got animated. Uh, there were some people in the country that didn't appreciate it. Uh, there, was, there were a lot of people that weren't happy about it. Um, I think that for the most part, though, we talk about the United States um, and we look at the fact that we had a first black president. It doesn't mean we live in a post-racial society, but I got to tell you, the last black president, you know, we have, we consider Leonel Fernandez as a black man, but he's, mm -hmm. you know, um, he, he's, a, he's a mulatto in the Dominican Republic, but the last black president in the Dominican Republic was assassinated in 1899. Mm -hmm. And a country that is 90% African descended hasn't had a black president since 1899, ever. Um, as a matter of fact, the one time that they had a shot at him, they made him, uh, they villainized the guy. Mm -hmm. uh, in Peña Gomez, as we started off with today. But the United States, with all its imperfections and all the, 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 the history of racism in this country and all, and all the nastiness that we have seen, elected its, its black president not once but twice with popular vote majorities and electoral college mm. vote majorities. So for those 
people that weren't happy, there were a lot more people that were. And he won in places that you would never even imagine that a black guy with a name like that, with a father from, from Africa, um, would ever win the presidency. Have you told me that when I was a child? I was like, really? Yeah, he, ha he won. He was exceptional. And he won. And this country did that. So this country isn't perfect, but man, Barack Hussein Obama won two elections back to back. That's a big deal. Yeah. Shame on those minorities, black and Latinos especially, who 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 didn't uh, who 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 poo pooed it as not a big deal. When when I see countries like the Dominican Republic who wouldn't do it, and our country with all its nastiness mm -hmm. and, and, and it's all this nasty history of racism was able to do it. That's a big deal. Right, right. We're still not done with racism. Yeah. But man, that's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. And we have a long way to go. Unfortunately, it did bring out a sense of... Um, uh, it, it did allow for a guy like Donald Trump to campaign as early as 2012 on the idea that he wasn't from here. Mm -hmm. He otherized the president and made himself a political rock star with a group of people and ultimately won the presidency. Right, right. It, that concerns me a great deal. Yeah, so yeah. I see your concern. It concerns me daily. I think about it often. Yeah. Do but you I, think about how, how this country, if, if there is... A possibility that we can heal as a nation? Uh, I, I think it'll take a while. Because you do have, you know, the, he exposed something I wasn't aware yeah. of. Yeah. I didn't know. I felt I was naive. Like, you know, there's, there's enough people here in this country to elect the person who says these things. Yeah. So it's going to take a while. Mm. So elections have consequences. And um, we saw that in 2016. Let me ask you this as a father. Um, how did your, did your kids react to what they saw in the elections? My daughter is a big liberal. Mm. She's gonna be. She's seventeen now. She's a big liberal. Oh my God, Sebastian was. Uh, he's thirteen and he's he's aloof to a lot of the politics. He likes Trump, I think, at times because of the rallies and he finds him funny. But he's not in tune with the things that Savannah is maybe in tune with politically. Mm -hmm. But um, Savannah was disgusted the whole time mm -hmm. with the grab them by your pussy stuff. What is yeah. that? Yeah, she was shocked. It shocks the conscience. Mm -hmm. My daughter was like, are you crazy? Mm -hmm. So she's always been this way. And she, today she's the same way. She feels that it was disgusting that he won. Right, right. Yeah, man. And just talking to you about uh, you being a father, um, and, I, and I see your post, man. You seem like you're just having a great time being a father. It. Yeah. I love it. I'm going to see him now. I'm going to pick up Sebastian right now. As a matter of fact, he's calling. <laughs> Probably you yeah. got to pick me up. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But, um... I love it, man. It's the yeah. best job. He's, he's gotten a little bigger, man. I think man, he, totally I think he could rough you up, you know, if you act out of line. No, man. Bigger than me. But I told him, like I told my, like my dad told me, he said, I have no problem. Mm. I don't have that many friends now, but if I go in, I get three meals a day. I don't have to work anymore. Right. <laughs> yeah. I said, I get three meals a day. I don't have to work and I'll make a lot of friends. So don't mess with me, Sebastian. Mm. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good for you, man. Beautiful thing to see. I, you know, before you leave, I, you know, your job at Univision, because I, I do believe that... There's a show in your future, your own show. Ah. Are you working towards that? What's well, going you know, on? I've been man? on Univision since 2014 now, and it's been a great run. It's Luis Miranda and I. We have a segment called Tiempo de Debate on Univision. Mm. Very, very popular. He's Lin-Manuel Miranda's father, and there's an HBO documentary on his life called Siempre Luis right now, mm. which is this incredibly popular about his life. So he's a big-time civil rights leader. He's founder of the Hispanic Federation, and... He's, the, he's my opponent every Tuesday night at every play Wednesday morning, and we go on election time daily. Um, so it's been a blast going on and, and uh, discussing politics with such a 
uh, an incredible person, and having that opportunity at the number one most watched news channel mm-hmm. in the tri-state. You know, because English speakers get channel two, seven, five, all these other channels, but Spanish-speaking people have Telemundo or Univision, and those loyalties are from when you were a little kid. So right. whatever your father and your mother watch, that's what you watch. And Univision has always had a wider audience. Right. So our ratings are incredible. So I, we benefit from being number one on, on the ratings from the 11 o'clock news, and they put us in at the 11 o'clock news. And it's great. So I do that, and... On New York One on my Monday nights, about every other Monday night on Inside City Hall. Mm. And on Metro Focus on PBS every Monday, I'm talking politics um, with uh, an incredible panel. Uh, and that airs on Channel 13, and it airs tr- in the tri-state area on PBS. Mm. So that's some really fun stuff. So it's really fun to talk politics, and, and not, not one time. This is what, what I love about the situation of being a centrist. I believe what I believe. And I don't have to change what I believe mm-hmm. because of the room that I'm in. Right. Whether I run citywide and only get 15% of the vote or if, in a, if I'm on television getting watched with millions of people, the positions are my positions. And yeah. it feels comfortable when you're here. And when you really don't care what people have to say, right. and who cuts you off. It's a, it's a liberating feeling. Right, right. Really, It really is. Because there's times when it's politically expedient to be like, oh, I'm going to stop talking about that because yeah. I want people not to like me. But you're right. like, well, I'm not... I, it's important to stop for a second and see other people's views and see why they think that way. Right. And I've learned a great deal by listening to people that don't have my views on economics and on criminal justice. You know, you go from a place where, oh, there is no discrimination, just don't break the law, to, man, there is discrimination. You right. go from a place from, oh, you know, there's no such thing as that, the, 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 the criminal justice system is not the best system, but it's a good system, and you're like, wait a minute, man, the capital punishment mm-hmm. is not applied correctly. Yeah. So you, it, 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 it's liberating. Right, because because Univision was wasn't always like that, right? Like no. they're now, you know. And as far as uh, even race, I find them to be a bit more progressive, not where they should be, um, but you know, I'm sure a lot of that has to do with bringing on personalities like you to you know widen the lens for them. Yeah, it's great. We you know the news channel now. You see Dominican, and Puerto Rican, and the different colors. Yeah, it's yeah. a great thing. Good for you, man. Yeah, you know, I really. So you didn't answer my question about your own show. Oh, I would love to have that one day. But the thing is, no centrist. Should we petition for this? No, centrist politics is not sexy. Centrist politics. No, no, you no, make it. Not, you make you, it sound sexy, brother. It's not. It's you not wear centrist. your orange, uh, you know, shirt. Yeah, that's it. Centrist politics is uh, AOC calls it. Um, what she say? Uh, boring, uh, cowardly. Uh, is it some other stuff that people? Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. She just came out against the, like she came out against Democrats, calling them incompetent. I saw that. I see, you know, but when you're centrist, is you have your, you, you know, you're you're open to both positions, and mm-hmm. you take you take the best of one world, and you take the best of both worlds, and have better policies. Okay. So if we have inequalities. High taxes are not good. Why don't we have uh, responsible tax cuts? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> there, there's ways about it that don't require extremes, and right. the reason why we got Trump is because of extremes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I think Biden won. Biden won in Georgia because he looked at the camera and says, look at me, really? You think right. I'm a freaking crazy wacko? Yeah. You think I'm okay with rioting and looting? You think I'm that person? Right. He, lo- he said that. And people know that's not him. So he's open for immigration discussions. He's open for talking about criminal justice now. He sees what happens because of the 94 crime bill. He sees what we can do about recidivism. And at the same time, he's at a whack job. Mm. So he's able to bring people together. And I mm. think that's why he won over uh, 5 million more votes and, and, and won 306 electoral college votes. And I think you're going to hopefully... Centrist politics becomes sexy and the show comes out. Right. It'll be tough to get. Yeah, yeah, I get you, man. <laughs> Listen, 
Listen, I appreciate your perspective. Thank I know you, sometimes we don't agree on on, great, on everything, but that's great, right? Imagine we did. That's the American suck. way. That's the that's <laughs> the American way. This is why uh, America is supposed to be great, right? Absolutely. Because of this uh, this kind of dialogue. But um, before you leave, I want you to share with us, if you can, dead or alive, is there anyone who has inspired you other than your father? Because I, I, you know, I sense from you that your parents. Uh, you know, instilled in you many values that have allowed you to be where you are today. There, there. You know, there's two people: one dead, one alive. I'd like, I'd love to speak with Colin Powell mm. more than you could imagine, and I would love to speak to Dr. King more than you mm. could imagine. So those two, uh, Toussaint is my all time. That was going way back too far. Yeah. But and he'll he'll speak French, and I don't understand it. So, um, I I'd, I'd speak with uh, uh, General Powell and. Um, Absolutely, I'd speak to Dr. King. I would love that. And if I had to pick one, he's, I'd have to go to Dr. King because I'll figure how a way to speak to, to Powell. He's still yeah. alive. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I get it. I get it. Awesome, man. Well, thank you for all you do, my brother. Thank, thank you for you, taking the time out of your busy schedule to come check me. I appreciate it. Um, where can we find you? Oh, I'm on Instagram at JC Polanco. Okay. On Twitter at JC Polanco NYC. And Facebook is also at JC Polanco NYC. That, I think it's Facebook.com slash... JC Polanco NYC. Okay, so uh, I'm not sure if we're Facebook friends, we're Instagram friends. Yes. And I can attest to this. JC Polanco is hilarious <laughs> on IG. You must follow him. <laughs> thank you, man. No problem, brother. Thank you, so much, man. thank you so much, man. Yes, yes, yes. This is a great show. Thank you, thank you, thank, thank you. you. Good work. Thank you, brother. Peace. Thank you.